0: What do you expect to find when you read science fiction? Well, no matter what you're interested in, today's book has a little bit of everything. Time travel, strange technology, cryogenic freezing, culture shock, alien invasions, female empowerment, fashion influencers… wait a second, what? Hello, Earthlings and Spacelings! Happy World Read Aloud Day! Welcome to the Fantasy Podcast, where we summarize sci-fi and fantasy books you'll probably never read because they're too old, too weird, or you already saw the movie. I'm your host, Erica Brickley, and I'm absolutely in love with books. Check out my Instagram for proof at Erica Brickley, spelled E-R-I-K-A, B as in boy, R-I-C-K-L-E-Y. Follow me there, subscribe to me here, leave a like, you know the drill. I'll let you know when my book project is finished. Sorry this episode took so long to come out. The covers for Frederick Pohl's The Age of the Pussyfoot are odd, to say the least. They seem to follow one of two patterns. Either they focus on the more serious topic of cryogenic freezing, or they feature something from the nuttier parts of the book. Oh, and there's one that just has a big futuristic station for flying cars. (laughs) There's a cover I really love that looks like a modern take on the old Jetsons TV show with a man surrounded by women and kids wearing uber-future outfits bordering on superhero costumes with their bright colors snazzy boots and fighter jet helmets another has a green tentacled alien my copy is the less creepy of the cryogenic freezing covers painted by robert foster Uh, the other one being a guy looking at you from inside what looks like a body bag (laughs) Using a color palette of yellows, lime greens, and orange, my cover depicts a man standing, frozen in a block of ice that seems to be melting, with a clockwork mechanism on the side. The man is suspended in a somewhat grotesque position, his hands raised in clawing positions, though his eyes are closed. The background is a landscape of rolling clouds. There is also a piece of quote included. A funny, sad, offbeat masterwork, according to author Stephen Lawnstreet. Okay, let's back up. Why are we covering this book today? It's actually one that I read simply because it was featured in Wayne Barlow's Guide to Extraterrestrials. To hear more about that, you can listen to episode six uh, about the voyage of the space beagle. There's a furry green alien with tentacles and a million eyes that Barlow painted for his book that was my sister's favorite out of all the aliens in it. In preparation for making her birthday present, a plushy version of this alien, I plucked this book off my shelf and gave it a read. I think I found it at a book sale and was surprised that this cover with the frozen man could be the same story that produced that alien. Much to my surprise and delight, it was really good. I was legitimately shocked by some of the author's predictions about the future of human society. There's a lot to pick apart. (laughs) Before we get ahead of ourselves, here's some background. The Age of the Pussyfoot was first written in 1965, with a longer version being published in 1969. Frederick Pohl's concept of what the future might look like was formed before the moon landing, before cell phones, before computers were even as smart as an iPod shuffle. Born in 1919, Pohl was a prolific writer and editor before his death in 2013. He collaborated with a number of famous writers, working on very popular sci-fi magazines, and is responsible for a fair number of works I own, though I haven't gotten to reading most of them. Let's also take a moment to define the word pussyfoot. According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary website, it means to tread or move warily or stealthily, or to refrain from committing oneself. I think I've heard it used by people telling each other not to be so pussyfooted or cowardly. This comes from the idea that pussycats walk lightly and carefully and can be skittish. So this book's title more or less means The Age of the Overly Cautious. Poll actually included both a foreword and an author's note in The Age of the Pussyfoot. As usual, I won't read you the back of the book lest anything is spoiled or ruined, but we will read the foreword now and save the author's note for a discussion later. I have two conflicting opinions. One is that any story should stand on its own feet. Which means that, generally speaking, anything a writer has to say about his own story is better left unsaid. If it's worth saying, why didn't he say it in the story itself? The other opinion, however, is equally firmly fixed in my mind, and at this moment it is in direct conflict with the first. That is, I think that more people should read science fiction than appear to be willing to do so. And I think the reason for this is that many people regard it as a crazy, fantastic stuff with no basis in the real world and no relevance to their own lives. I would like to hope that some people will read this book who normally don't read science fiction. If you are one of them, and if you begin to feel like those many others mentioned above, please pause in your reading and go on to look at the author's note included in the back of the book. It seems to me that science fiction can have relevance to the real world, and yes, to your own life. And some of my reasons for thinking so are set forth here. So, let's take a look at Frederick Pohl's 1960s vision of the future. I'll tell you right now that if you enjoy this episode, you might consider getting your hands on a copy of your own, since there are so many little details and slang terms I'm not even going to include here for my own sanity. With that being said, enjoy. HALT. This is your trigger warning. We are discussing a book all about cryogenic freezing, which means topics like death, homicide, and ending ones own life are brought up frequently within the context of a world where death isn't permanent. If you feel like any of these topics will make you feel poorly, please refrain from listening to this episode. Thank you. Chapter One Forrester is a man revived, enjoying a dreamlike party of the future where people lounge about, splash in warm water scented with rose and sage, and use wands called Joymakers to spray each other with good feelings. He is surrounded by naked Adonises and Venuses, innocent and drowsy and comfortable in a future without obscenities. The host of the party is a man called Hara, who encourages Forrester to relax and enjoy. Get acclimated, Hara says. Go slow. You've been dead a long time. Everyone at the party knows him. It's Forrester, the rich man, they shout, singing, Oh, he, he, died, died, and he, died, he died and he died and he died. died. And, and he, he, he cried, and cried and he cried and he cried. With his, his, his rages and his collars, he's, he's a puzzle to the, to the scholars, scholars. And, he's, and got he's got a quarter, quarter of a million dollars. dollars. Forrester. And he, and he slept, slept and he slept and he slept. And he wept and he wept and he wept. Is he damning? Is he dooming? For that matter, is he human? Forrester. A young woman with beautiful fluffy hair enters the room, and Forrester decides to introduce himself. I am Charles D. Forrester, he says. I am 596 years old. I have a quarter of a million dollars. This is my first day out of the sleep freeze, and I would appreciate it if you would sit down and talk to me for a while, or kiss me. Certainly, she says, let's lie down here on the violets. Careful of my joymaker, it's loaded with something special. Just a quick note here that $250,000 in 1968 money would be worth about $2 million today. They lie together, arms under each other's heads, eating glass-clear grapes off a vine. Hara comes by while the woman tells Forrester not to sign up as a donor or as game, though he doesn't really understand or care what she's talking about. When Forrester finally acknowledges Hara, the party host greets the woman. Hello, Tip. You two seem to be getting on well enough. "'He's nice,' she says. "'Of course, you're nice too, Tip. "'Is it time for the champagne wine yet?' Forrester is quite intoxicated, and Hara becomes a little more serious, spraying him with something cold using his joymaker to sober him up, reminding him not to get too drunk while he's adjusting to being alive again. Besides, he has to show them how to properly get drunk off the champagne wine they acquired for his benefit. As they go, Forrester spares a thought for his wife Dorothy, if he ever sees her again, he'll give all this up. But for now, he will revel in it. It's only been 90 days since, quote, His body had been a cryogenic crystal in an ambience of liquid helium with his heart stopped and his brain still and his lungs a clot of destroyed scar tissue, unquote. The rest of the evening is a stumbling, dancing mass of 20-something people enjoying the champagne Forrester taught them to drink. They listen to cello and flutes. Oh, Charles! The woman cries, you almost make an Arcadian of me. There are others like her, or giant men recently returned from Mars, and they all laugh together, or Forrester's clumsy attempts at dancing. He laughs louder than any of them. After that, Forrester's memory of the night fades into flashes. They thought about sobering him up. They decided not to. The woman gave him a spritz from her joymaker. She helped him get home. When he wakes up in the morning, he is alone and ready for a new day. Chapter 2 Waking up in this modern world is wonderful. The oval-shaped bed purrs softly until he is awake, then it kneads his muscles and plays lively music as the lights come on. "'Good morning, Man Forrester,' the bed says. "'It is 8.50 hours, and you have an appointment at 9.75. Would you like me to tell you your calls?' "'Not now,' Forrester says. He wants to contemplate a few things, and he does so while smoking a cigarette. Last night he promised himself he would think seriously about his future starting today, about how to be a good working citizen despite his vast wealth. He is still a man of 37, just as he was before being burned to death, and he feels pretty good about himself. Perhaps there are many others like him, but at this moment Forrester feels unique and fortunate. After only a few minutes, Forrester is annoyed with the talking bed, as he was with Hara for hovering during his conversation with the pretty woman last night. He doesn't want to hear his messages. He doesn't want the bed to constantly ask if it can get him things. All he wants is to spend a few minutes uncommitted. No basic training, no army, no children, no wife. No orders, no obligations, no promises. And now he's not only alive and healthy, but living in a time when people can survive almost any injury. If the doctors can't fix a problem now, you get frozen again until they can. Quote, He had, in short, a blank check on life. Unquote. Now what Forrester wants are family, friends, and a position in the community. He doesn't want to live in the year 2527 AD, devoid of any value, just because he can. Man Forrester, the bed says, I must insist, I have both an urgent class message and a personal visit notice. The mattress begins moving up and down, depositing Forrester on the floor. A hunting license has been taken out on you, Man Forrester. The licensee is Heinzlichen Jure Desiertes Major, Male, Parisen Utopian, 86 elapsed, 6 feet 4 inches, Import-Export, he is extraterrestrial human, no reason declared, bonds and guarantees have been posted, would you like your coffee now? Not really understanding, Forrester watches as the bed disappears into a sphincter in the wall, then finds his joy maker and orders breakfast, ham, eggs, toast, orange juice, coffee a pack of cigarettes. The same system that speaks through the bed responds, reading off the rest of the messages. Taiko Hiranibi will join you for breakfast. Dr. Hara has prescribed a euphoric in case of need, which will be delivered with your breakfast. Adney Benson sends you a kiss. First Merchants Audit and Trust invites your patronage. Society of Ancients states you have been approved for membership and relocation benefits. Ziegler, Durant, and Colfax attorneys, Forrester tells the computer to stop, not wanting to hear any more ads. He's still getting used to the Joymaker. Quote, it was a remote input-output station for a shared-time computer program, with certain attachments that functioned as pocket flask, first-aid kit, cosmetic bag, and so on. It looked something like a mace or a jester's scepter, unquote. Forrester has to convince himself that it's no weirder than walking around with a telephone, though he's talking to a computer and not a person on the other end of the line. He asks the computer about these people calling him, and he gives him too many details about Taiko Hironibi and Adney Benson. What Forrester does appreciate is the simulated kiss Adney sent him but he gets flustered when asked if he'll accept the waiting house guest. Not sure if he should change clothes, and getting more and more annoyed with the overly helpful computer. The joymaker sprays him with a relaxing mist, which helps. Taiko Hironibi is an energetic man with blonde hair and blue eyes, much to Forrester's surprise, and he launches into his proposal right away. Unfortunately, it seems to be political, and Forrester doesn't know what he's talking about. Tycho talks about how the people have become lazy sheep. How he's an Arcadian, while most people are trimmers. How it doesn't matter if Forrester used to be a democrat, because it's in the past now. How children are growing up with too many machines. While Forrester's breakfast arrives, Tycho takes out his own breakfast from a pouch in his kilt. Forrester takes the pill that arrived with his meal, and now he's in a wonderful mood. Practically affectionate feeling towards the Japanese man and his pickled plums. That doesn't stop him from being his usual blunt self, asking point-blank what benefit there is in joining the Ned Ludd society that Tycho has been talking about. Disgruntled, Tycho assures Forrester that he's not trying to force him into it, that he was put in contact with him by Adney Benson. Forrester insists that he doesn't know whoever this Adney is, and is disgusted that any money would be involved, puffing smoke in Tycho's face. It occurs to Forrester that with his hangover, joymaker mist, relaxation pill, and cigarette, he's practically roaring drunk. Quote, How manly of him, he thought, to keep his wits so clear when he was so smashed. Unquote. Tycho is angered by all of this. You act like I'm trying to take advantage of you. What's the matter with you? Don't you see that the machines are depriving us of natural human birthright? To be miserable if we want to, to make mistakes, to forget things? Don't you see that we Luddites want to smash the machines and give the world back to the people? I mean, not counting the necessary machines, of course. Forrester sees the man out, then howls with laughter at the man's attempt to con him out of his riches. Are you addressing me, man Forrester? The computer wonders. Not in this life, he retorts. Despite his joymaker's protests, Forrester heads downstairs to take a walk. The city of the future is busy, noisy, and fast. From here he can see a 12-lane highway of speeding, fumeless traffic passing between huge buildings built out of odd materials, painted bright colors. Some have courtyards and fountains and plants. He continues to ignore his joymaker, sure that all questions can be deferred in favor of enjoying a nice day. Back in the day he had walked San Francisco, Rome, New York, and Chicago with equal comfort. The few people he passes look soft, and he wonders if he looks like a hairy troglodyte to them. Quote, crude, savage, flint axed, unquote. The joymaker loudly informs him something about a Heinzlikendurin desirtes major saying death reversal equipment is on the way. Just then, some sort of hovercraft is above him, following him like a balloon. It is white with a red aesculapius on its side, the healing staff of Greek mythology. That's funny, Forrester says. It's a funny world, someone behind him says. Forrester turns to see four men. Forrester recognizes the man in front as the big man from Mars who was at the party last night. Earth's gravity weighs on him, and he uses a cane to hobble forward. They seem friendly and come to shake Forrester's hand. Look me up when this is all over, one of them says. I'd like to know what a fellow like you thinks of our world. Then they kick him in the groin. Forrester falls to the ground, and the Martian beats him with his cane. The men pass it around to take turns. You were warned, man Forrester, the joymaker says, and slowly the world goes black. Chapter 3 Forrester wakes up in the medical hovercraft that was following him. The technician is watching some sort of odd tournament on the TV screen, but she turns it off when he asks questions. She's just there to transport people, not really caring who Forrester is. "'or the person covered in a sheet in the other stretcher. "'When he gets angry, she sprays him with her joymaker "'so he is too weak to move. "'You're a greenhorn, aren't you?' she says. "'I can always tell. "'You people wake up in the dormer "'and you think you're God's own sweat. "'Now, I know my job, and my job is to keep you alive, "'or keep you safely dead till they can take care of you. "'I don't have to talk to you. "'I especially don't have to listen to you.' "'Annoyed as she is, Even though the hovercraft's autopilot is bringing them in for a landing, the technician uses her joymaker to put Forrester completely to sleep. The text says this, At the temperature of liquid helium, chemistry stops. On this fact, and on one reasonable hope, the largest industry of the late 20th century had been built. The reasonable hope was that the progress of medicine in past years would be matched by similar progress in the future, so that, no matter what a person might die of, At some future time, a way would be found to cure it, to repair it, or at least to make it irrelevant to continuing life and activity, including a method of repairing the damage done by freezing a body to that temperature. The fact was that freezing stopped time, and the industry was Immortality Inc. In the city of Shago, in which Forrester had awakened, a city that was nearly 800 years old and enormous, a thousand acres of park along a lake front, had humped themselves into a hill. All around was flat. The hill itself was an artifact. It was, as a matter of fact, the freezing center for that part of the world. 150 million cubic yards of earth had been eaten out of the ground to make a cold storage locker for people. After the locker was built, most of the dirt was heaped back on top of it for insulation. The differential in temperature between ground level and the heart of the frozen hill was nearly 500 degrees Fahrenheit or 300 and more in the Kelvin scale on which the dormer operated. Forrester wakes up to the sound of the facility's instruments and is terrified that he is going to be frozen again. But he isn't. They clean him up, apply healing jelly, and help him fully wake up. The young man providing treatment is casual and friendly as he touches Forrester's belly button with a probe that gives some sort of reading. He then directs Forrester to Hara's office since he's in some kind of trouble, though the tech doesn't know why. Forrester can walk without pain and follows a flashing arrow on the floor to the office. Not too long ago, he lived in this facility, bathed in warm oils and doing exercises and sleeping in a bed of gold poinsettias. There had been others, but they were all sent to different places when the time came. He misses them as if they were high school classmates long ago, not men he'd saw just 48 hours prior. Hara is his usual jovial self, but the point of this meeting is Forrester's fault. "'Didn't the center warn you somebody was after you?' he asks. "'At first, Forrester is indignant. "'Then it dawns on him that that might have been "'what the joymaker was talking about earlier. "'Hara confirms that it was Heinz Lickengera de Major "'as they sip champagne. "'I don't know, Charles,' Hara says, "'but I don't think I'll acquire a taste for this stuff after all.' "'Annoyed, Forrester downs his glass, though it's not very good.' He wants to know how someone is allowed to gang up on him and beat him senseless. For once he humbly asks for an explanation. Har isn't sure where to start, seeing as Forrester hasn't done as he was told and read his orientation book, meant to introduce him to the concepts of the year 2527. Probably Forrester did something rude at the party, like step on the Martians' feet while they dance, a far greater offense than it might seem to an Earthling. Hara leads Forrester to the door, telling him he'll send over another copy of the book and insisting he read it this time. Oh, Adney Benson sends regards, Hara tells him before closing the door. She likes you. Forrester is released with a folder containing medical records, the aforementioned book, Your Guide to the 26th Century, 1970-1990 Edition, a sort of legal summons for one week from now, and a check for $231,057.56. It's a smaller amount than he expected, but not by much, so he pockets it. Outside, Forrester looks out at the fluorescent neon city of Shago, reflecting sunlight off of metal and glass, with hovercraft flying overhead. He thinks about the woman from the party. Tip, was that her name? And the Martian out to get him, and a planet of 17 billion people, and feels lonely knowing there are twice as many people asleep in the helium baths below his feet. As he smokes his last cigarette, Forrester also thinks about the Joymaker. It's almost like a genie that requires him to be equally confident in his wishes, as it is in its service, and he's uncertain if he's up to it. It's time to go home. However, much to his alarm, the Joymaker informs him that the room did not belong to him, and he checked out the second he left. Oh, well, it's not like he had many possessions there. Overwhelmed by his odd situation and the number of messages waiting for him again, One urgent, two personal, one notice of legal, seven commercial, Forrester asks the joymaker what he should do. It suggests a tea shop, food, and reading his orientation book. He stops it before it can go on and does just that. Chapter 4 an orange and black hovercraft cab carries Forrester to a sort of mall with landing pad balconies where he is met by the shop hostess and led to a tea room. He sits by a reflecting pool full of silver fish. Who do I order from? He asks. We are all the same, man Forrester, she says. Disconcerted by the revelation that she must be a robot, Forrester orders the tea and cakes she suggests then settles in with his orientation book. There are sections like making friends, job opportunities, living on a budget, and so on. He starts with learning about the Joymaker. Here's what the book says. The remote access computer transponder called the Joymaker is your most valuable single possession in your new life. If you can imagine a combination of telephone, credit card, alarm clock, pocket bar, reference library, and full-time secretary, you will have sketched some of the functions provided by your Joymaker. Essentially, it is a transponder connecting you with the central computing facilities of the city in which you reside on a shared time, self-programming basis. Shared time means that many other Joymakers use the same central computer. In Shago, something like 10 million of them. If you go to another city, your Joymaker will continue to serve you, but it must be reset to a new frequency and pulse code. This will be done automatically when you travel by public transportation. However, if you use private means, or if for any reason you spend any time in the agricultural areas, you must notify the Joymaker of your intentions. To test this out, Forrester asks the robot who brings him his tea for his messages. Certainly, Man Forrester, if you wish, she says. Alfred Geisman wishes to see you on political business. Adney Benson asks you to return her message of this morning. The 19th Chromatic Trust informs you that arrangements have been made for you to establish banking facilities with them. Forrester stops it there. Sipping his tea, which is more like heated menthol than the sweetened teas he's used to, he returns to the book, learning that he can use others' transponders, like the robot or other people's joymakers, as long as his own joymaker is in range. The joymaker pipes up with urgent messages, and Forrester tells it to stop bothering him if there aren't any matters of life and death to address. He's doing what it told him to, isn't he? However, he gets to thinking and asks the Joymaker why the Martian attacked him. It states that Heinzlich and Jura, de Sirtis Major, filed the proper paperwork to murder him based on a grievance while the other three men listed their motivation as a practical joke. This is a big reminder that Forrester is very ignorant and he keeps reading in the orientation book. Something in the text about using joymakers as credit cards reminds Forrester that he should maybe think about finding a bank, like the one of those uh, sending him messages. He stops to look around at the other people in the large hall, most of them sitting in groups, and briefly considers making friends by going over to ask to sit with them, but decides against it. I have an urgent notice of personal visit, man Forrester, the joymaker says. Forrester ignores it, looking at the list of clubs in the Making Friends section of the book. Social, exercise, professional, political, religious, therapeutic, birdwatching, stamp collecting, family lineage, you name it and there's a group for you. The Society of Ancients was for people like Forrester, who had been revived after hundreds of years. That looked interesting, but he's confused about why there aren't more industrial worker unions and the like. The joy-maker tries again to give him an urgent message, and again Forrester ignores it, only to be surprised when someone puts their arms around him. It's the woman from the party. Tip, I'm glad to see you, he says, giving her a tight hug, happy to see a friendly face. My name is Adney Benson, she corrects him. Call me Adney. Finally, Forrester understands that she's the one who's been sending him messages. She invites him to dinner at her house, and laughs when he immediately accepts. You are such an impetuous man, Charles, Adney says. Is that why they call you the kamikaze people? I mean, your century and all. She orders tea, and they get to talking, Adney wondering why Forrester hasn't been talking with his joymaker or doing normal things like filing an interests profile that will help him find clubs to join. After all, there's so much to do. One needs the joymaker's help to sift through it. Suddenly, the joymakers all start loudly saying... Priority Priority urgent. urgent. This is a drill. drill. Take cover. Take cover. 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 Resigned. Adney and everyone else in the hall makes their way to the shelter. Air raid? Forrester asks in fear. A war? Not exactly, Charles, dear, Adney says. Don't you know anything? Then what? Aliens. Monsters. That's all. Now hurry, or we'll never get a seat. Chapter 5 Adney leads Forrester to an underground auditorium of chairs that is quickly filling up. A man in the front congratulates them all on their swift time, his voice echoing through all the joymakers in the hall. And then they are dismissed. Forrester is nervous to leave if there's any chance of an attack, but Adney just laughs at the notion of a war. You're so funny, you kamikazes, she says. A little shaken, Forrester still goes with Adney to have dinner at her home. Although he didn't have a chance to fight in World War II, he did live through it, and he's not satisfied with how this air raid drill went. He tries to explain his feelings to Adney, but she's not really interested. She changes into something pretty and listens to messages on her Joymaker, though the volume is turned down so he can't hear it. Then she has some packages to look through, though she stops to pour Forrester a minty drink first. He watches her open the packages to reveal clothes and cosmetics that she says are for her job, including a soft green faux fur wrap. I'm a reactor, she says, weighted at nearly 50 million with two nines reliability. If I like a thing, the chances are 99 out of 100 that the others will too. And this is how you make your living? Forrester asks. It's how I get rich, Adney corrects him. She offers to help him get a similar job reacting to things newly thawed people might like. But he declines, careful not to flaunt the fact that he's already rich. Adney then asks how he died. Charles Forrester was a volunteer fireman. He climbed a ladder to the top floors of a burning building where a child was trapped, and he ended up inhaling smoke and fire. When he woke up in the year 2527, Forrester noticed that he looked a little younger, his eyes a little bluer, and Adney giggles that Hara can't help himself when it comes to making a few improvements. Dinner arrives through a serving door in the wall, just as breakfast had. Quote, Forrester was able to identify few if any of the foods served him. The textures were sort of oriental, with crisp things like water chestnuts and gummy things like sukiyaki lending variety to the crunch of lettuce and the plasticity of the starches. The flavors were queer, but palatable," unquote. As they eat, he talks about himself, married, three kids, job, good at poker, lots of friends. You must have been one of the first to be frozen, Adney comments, 1969? That's only a few years after it began. That seems to be the case, as Forrester's fire department was gifted a death reversal truck by a local millionaire. He gets to thinking about his wife Dorothy and what little he knows about her. Adney has dinner cleared and invites him to sit with her while he drinks his coffee and they listen to music similar to Tchaikovsky. They talk about where Forrester might live, perhaps in this condominium, and there's a slightly flirty undertone. I think I should warn you, Adney says drowsily, I'm natural flow and this is about m-day minus four so all I want is to be cuddled. She notices his sudden discomfort, but Forrester manages to cover it up by asking for a refill. Invigorated, Admi hops up, saying she'll find him a place to live. She touches something that causes a wall mural to pull away to reveal an adjacent room. Order what you want, she says. If you don't know how, the children will show you while they're keeping you company. Two children, a boy and a girl, of about seven, are playing on a sort of maze jungle gym in the other room. We ate our dinner, Mim, they call out. You don't mind this either, do you, Charles, dear? Adney asks. That's another thing about being a natural flow. Forrester is immediately bombarded with questions. Did people really smell bad in the old days? You rode in automobiles? When the little children had to work in the coal mines, Charles, did they get anything to eat? But what did they play with, Charles? Dolls that didn't talk? He does his best to explain, but the kids keep piping up with bits of random knowledge and pushing him to explain how he died. "'Mim drowned once,' the girl brags. "'We haven't died at all.' "'When Forrester asks them about lessons, the boy says, "'Tunt ought to be doing hers right now.' "'Then he asks if the guest needs anything. "'Something to eat? Drink? Watch a program? Sex stim? "'Although I guess you ought to know that Mim's natural flow and—' Forrester stops him right there, trying his best to remember, "'When in Rome, do as the Romans do.' He decides he needs to think of this future world as a party that doesn't start out well, but after a few drinks could be a pretty good time. He thinks, I'll catch the mood of this age if it kills me. Again. Chapter 6. Forrester explores the apartment Adney found for him. The walls make closets as needed or turn into window-like TV screens. However, he spends more time at Adney's place learning from the children They help him to go to the bank to get his check safely filed away by the convincing robots. They take him to lunch at the Titanian restaurant, where only live food is served floating in aspic and writhing on his spoon. They bring him to their play school where they make friends, though lessons are held at home on their junior joymakers. They show him where the poor people live, who talk about soul burn on Mercury and bankrupt insurance firms. They walk with him in an underground park to feed ducks, frogs, and Venusian fish. They visit a museum to see videos of mitosis and a recreation of a tyrannosaurus rex. They show him everything but office buildings and factories, as if those don't exist. And eventually they head back when reminded by the joymakers. Man Forrester, the children must be returned for their naps, and he really must receive your messages. As they walk, the joymaker keeps insisting that it has urgent messages for him. Before Forrester can decide whether to ignore it or not, a death reversal vehicle comes to hover overhead. When asked, the joymaker confirms that the 24-hour hold on the hunting license ended 17 minutes ago and the Martian is on his way again. Forrester asks the children if they know any secret ways to get home. Tunt, the girl says to her brother, Charles wants to hide. Hesitantly, the boy agrees to take them the way he knows. Follow me. You too, Tunt. They dip inside a building, and Forrester looks back to get a glimpse of the death reversal tech's face, surprised and angry. Back at Adney's condo, Forrester listens to all his messages. They include someone offering him legal counsel, Taiko Hironibi wondering if there was a misunderstanding, Adney Benson sending him an embrace, and there is also a document package. He orders a gin and tonic, then has a look at the document, something addressed to him upon revival. It's a letter from his wife. At 79 years old, Dorothy's handwriting is old and wiggly, but her words are clear. She provides details about the time following his death, how his fellow firefighters insisted he be frozen despite the difficulty of his case. The fire department's insurance paid for it. Dorothy goes on to summarize how their sons handled it. Vance distracted himself with the Boy Scouts, got married, had children, and lived a life of basic family drama. David joined the Peace Corps and ended up killed by insurgents, two mutilated for freezing. Billy became a senator for Hawaii and is expected to become president. It's been 40 years since she was widowed, 37 since she remarried, and they have two daughters. She signs the letter, Still with affection, Dorothy. Overcome with emotion. Forrester asks the joymaker about President Wilton and Forrester, and is astounded that it's true. The boy was just two when Forrester was frozen. The joymaker lets him know Adney is visiting, and she arrives seething. Dog sweat. Twitching kamikaze. Pervert creep, you get a kick out of this, don't you? Want to make my kids like you? Want to change them into chattertooth, hand-working, dog-sweaty, cowardly? He gets her to sit down. My kids, you want to ruin them? You hide from a challenge. Charles, you're pathetic. You haven't got money enough to feed a sick pup or character enough to make him a dog. Go rot. Forrester isn't sure what the big deal is. He's still unsettled by Adney sometimes, by the skin-tight jumpsuits she wears, and he doesn't understand what the problem is when there is a Martian out to get him. When he accidentally sloshes his drink and splashes her face, Adney calms down. Oh, Charles, you know you're an idiot, don't you? They have an embrace and a kiss, but when Adney steps away to use the lavatory, Forrester asks her a question rather than carry on. What did you mean when you said I didn't have a lot of money? Tired of his ignorance, Adney gets him to show her his bank statement. Her association with Dr. Hara means she knows something about his circumstances, so she knows exactly what she's looking for. Forrester's insurance payout and 500-plus years of interest actually resulted in $2.7 million dollars. That money was used to pay for his revival procedures until he was left with just 250000 left over to walk away with. It's the only reason he was able to be revived at all. Plus, he was treated for being beaten up by the Martian, so that's why he only has about $230,000 now. Adney is a bit angry with him for his ignorance, especially in regards to messing things up with Heinze. She tries her best to be patient, to explain that the procedures he had would have been just as expensive back in the day, if anyone had actually been able to do them. There's a reason it took so long for him to be revived, which is evident when Annie pulls out another page from the packet that is a photograph of Forrester's ruined face. She calmly reads the notes about all the injuries his, he sustained by falling face first into the fire. Even his eyes had to be completely replaced. Forrester is sickened, finally accepting that hundreds of people had to work on him to grow new pieces to put it all together. He changes the subject, asking how long his remaining funds will last him. Adney gives it some thought, considering the specialty items he orders like cigarettes, eggs, and juice, and hesitantly tells him she thinks he'll have about a week before money runs out. For a moment, Forrester is in a panic, while Adney's mood brightens. He's not skilled enough to make a million dollars a day, but he could certainly make 25k. At this point, Forrester discovers that Taiko Hiro was not trying to con him, but offer him a job at Adney's recommendation. It turns out that in the future, so much is automated that people earn money through the simple act of working, be it in a club, or as a reactor, or some other profession of interest. Before they can talk about it more, the Joymaker gets Forrester's attention. He doesn't want to hear his messages right now, but Adney thinks he should. It's probably Heinze the Martian coming to get him like she asked him to. Chapter 7 Heinz shows up. Adney is ready to see a show, while Forrester is terrified. The big Martian is eager to kill him, but Adney reminds Heinzee that he came here to talk about how Forrester doesn't know any better. This gives Forrester the opportunity to demand answers. Unfortunately for him, Heinzee doesn't feel like he needs a good reason. Aside from the way Forrester stepped on his toes at the party, he simply doesn't like him, Fortunately, Adney uses her friendly charm to get him comfortably talking about how much he paid to get the paperwork done for a painful death. At this point, Forrester seizes his chance to ask about the legal parts of the process and finds out that part of the game is that Heinze must pay whatever it will cost to have Forrester frozen and pawn his death. This leads him to a significant loophole. Forrester doesn't have enough funds left to be revived even if he was frozen. It never occurred to Heinze that Forrester wasn't working yet, that his accounts might be drying up, and he says he'll talk to a lawyer after the concert he has to get to. Feeling much better, having actually done something, even as silly as winning an argument, Forrester is glad to be alone with Adney. She changed the lights from red to blues and is using her joymaker to tell her children goodnight. They've already been fed by the machines in her condo. He sits with her and she gives him something soothing, telling him that while she's not sure he did the right thing, she's a naturalist and enjoys the ups and downs of life and sex. She's interested in more than just cuddling tonight. Forrester wakes up the next morning acutely aware that he is the father of a president and the lover of Adney Benson, which is a pretty good feeling. He uses this good mood to ask the joymaker about finding a well-paying job. This takes him a long time because he doesn't give it any good information, just asks it things like it's a person who knows him already. Pretty soon he gives up on that and decides to visit Adney. The Joymaker informs him of a Class Gamma alert that might result in drills for the next five minutes. So Forrester waits until that ends, listening to his messages. One from Adney says Dear Charles, see me again soon, you dragon. And you know we have to think about something, don't you? We have to decide on a name. Chapter 8 At Adney's condo, Forrester sees the kids. Hello, Tunt, he says. Hello, Mim. This greeting earns him some odd looks, and he wonders if he mixed their names up. It turns out Adney isn't home. She's out doing something called crawling, and the kids are in the middle of a secret meeting with the other kids joining in virtually. When Forrester asks about it, they say there are four boys, three girls, a grown-up, a robot, and a Martian, although this one is green with four arms. Forrester is beginning to feel like an ancient Greek transported to the 20th century, baffled by wall sockets and picture boxes. The Bushmen of Times Square, he thinks to himself. Even more startling than the children's talk of green Martians is the realization that these beings don't exist at all. The kids are communicating with simulogues, essentially AI characters. The kids say Taiko Hironebe doesn't like that they do this, since he thinks it will cause them to lose touch with reality. They show him a video of Tycho changing the wall from a Forest Glen scene to a TV screen. It shows the man dancing around in a wig, saying, Geez kids, you want to get your gosh darn brain scrambled? You want to be a juiceless jellyfish? If you don't, then let Lud lead, let Lud lead. It seems to be some sort of material from the Ned Ludd Society he works for. The kids ridicule it, saying Tycho is an old utopian, backwards as an ape. Forrester tells them he might have to work for Tycho since he needs a job, and they're a bit embarrassed for him, saying they've never heard of someone being out of money, save for the forgotten men. The kids proceed to help him with the basics, like being tested for an employability profile. The joymaker asks him questions like, What is God? Are your stools black and tarry? If you happened to be a girl, would you wish you were a boy? Assume there are Plutonians. Assume there are elves. If elves attacked Pluto without warning, whose side would you be on? Why are you better than anyone else? There are more weird, embarrassing questions than that, and the children aren't surprised by any of it, though they go back to their viewing wall soon enough. When he's finished, Forrester comes over and they say they're watching the semifinals of something, though it looks a lot like a terrible plane crash. Is 10 million a year too much to ask for? Charles asks. Sweat, Charles, the boy says. How would we know? Tant's projected life average is about 12 million a year, mine's 15, but of course we've got, uh, more advantages. The screen switches to news about what seems to be an interstellar war. It's been long and drawn out, but only 22 Syrians have been killed, whatever that means. Forrester's Joymaker tells him it has his results, and he has a flashback to standing in line at the employment office after leaving the army. Not one for sifting through lists of options, he takes the first job the Joymaker tells him about one that pays over $3 million per year with $5 million in covered expenses. Only then does he find out what the job is, and the kids get more and more interested as the description is read out. All he has to do is be available during the middle of the day if he hears a certain chime on his joymaker, at which point he is required to take the call and answer questions. When the joymaker is done talking, Forrester asks the kids what they're all excited about, but they don't answer clearly. He's getting better at using the gadget, finding the right button to spray himself with calming mist. Then he has the joymaker project a picture of his employer on the viewing wall. Quote, He hadn't expected his employer to have bright green fur or a diadem of tiny eyes peering out of a ruff around a pointed head or tentacles. He had not, in fact, expected it to be one of the enemy, the race whose presence in space has scared mankind into a vast series of raid drills, weapon programs, and space probes. In short, a Syrian. Chapter 9 There are 11 Syrian prisoners. They were discovered by an extrasolar spaceship, and the humans decided to strike first, ask later. These few Syrians survived in their spacesuits and were brought back to Earth where they have resided for the past 30 years. Forrester can't help but feel sad for these beings separated from their home. Now they live under house arrest. Here were the rules. Humanity doesn't contact Sirius lest they invite a war. The prisoners can never leave Earth. And Earth must prepare in case of attack someday. The chime sounds and the Syrian appears on the viewing screen. You are Charles Doglish, Forrester, it says in a hollow voice. And you work for me, and you call me S4. The alien wants to know about Forrester. It wants to know about human history from a subjective source, someone who lived through the events. It doesn't want to be lectured. Forrester tells it about the WPA, the New Deal, and even his high school graduation, until the Syrian signs off. Adney was less pleased than the children when she heard about this new job, saying people will think he's doing an evil thing by working for the enemy that Tycho would have paid him similarly for a socially acceptable job. Regardless, Forrester wants to do this on his own, and lets her kids tell him everything they know about Syrians. Though nobody knows much. There have been probes sent out to do some prying, but there's too much fear about them being followed back to Earth. The topic of space travel gets the kids thinking about constructs they can use to simulate the experience. Using his junior joymaker, the boy has the room transform into the bridge of a spaceship overlooking a sun, a recreation of the actual first encounter between species. It's a spectacular illusion as the boy drives the ship in a battle against a Syrian scout, nagging his sister when she fails to use proper jargon. Before long, they're destroyed by the enemy, much to the boy's annoyance. But he perks up when he finds out that some of what Forrester saw means he wasn't a completely useless Player 3. And Forrester is interested in other variations, other events. They show him multiple artifacts of unknown origin in space, like the coconut on the moon. These items are empty and so ancient that neither humans nor Syrians know who put them there. Forrester is unsettled by the gaping holes in his knowledge of human history. Chapter 10 Forrester has been awake for six days and working for three. Though Adney dislikes his job, being a conversation partner for the Syrian is pretty easy. It wanted to know things about the past that eventually led to the world's current state of affairs. Forrester thinks an alien captive would be better off asking someone about Earth's defense systems, but is happy enough to talk about the World Series and ad agencies. Meanwhile, Forrester is learning about the year 2527. He discovers that his quarter of a million dollars would have lasted him if only the expectations for a comfortable life hadn't become so extreme. If he lived like a 1969 peasant without robots and fancy medical services, the money would have lasted. He has accepted all this, but he is angry that everyone around him allowed him to become a sort of joke. More than anything, Forrester doesn't want Adney to be in on the joke, to look down on him when she means a lot to him. However, for now he will be modest and play it safe. Quote, Forrester had not yet discovered that in one particular and quite unpleasant way he was on his way to becoming the most important man in the world. Unquote. "Although his job is going well, there is something Forrester can't quite put his finger on. The Syrian seems preoccupied, almost distracted, and sometimes makes odd suggestions, like that it hypnotize him to, quote, secure in-depth reference plus buried traumas of former time." Unquote. Sometimes it wants to know about the 20th century. Sometimes it asks about wars 2,000 years earlier. Forrester has to research some of these events due to his own lack of knowledge. Sometimes the Syrian pays for a big expenses like the Joymaker. Sometimes it doesn't want to pay for research trips. It never showed interest in the other 10 Syrians stuck on earth. It can't understand the difference between law and an ethical boundary. Forrester also researches Syrians, watching the probe tapes that show their fortresses and weaponry, as well as what seems to be war games. After that, Forrester gives up any ideas about visiting the Syrian at home. After five days on the job, Forrester is getting pretty good with the Joymaker. He goes off to research the Ned Ludd Society for the Syrian, then is ordered to stop that research and switch to the topic of the 1960s space race. Forrester's own curiosity urges him to keep looking into Taiko Hironibi and the Luddites, who in the past were known to hack apart computing machines, shouting, Men for men's jobs! Machines for bookkeeping! Suddenly, the joymaker lets him know he has two messages. One, Heinzee the Martian has renewed his hunting license, and two, the Syrian has fired him for not researching the space race in a timely fashion. His feelings are hurt. But Forrester decides it's for the best, seeing as Adney and the kids weren't keen on him working for the enemy. The Joymaker quickly finds him an easy, well-paying job with short shifts. The job title is Standby Machine Monitor for the Great Sub Lake Fusion Generating Station Under Lake Michigan. The purpose is to be on standby in case of a cybernetic failure, in which case the technician can maintain vocal contact with the computer. Unfortunately, 24 hours later, he discovers that the premium pay is awarded to those who take on the risk of possibly getting hit with high doses of radiation. His predecessors all lay frozen as radioactive blocks, waiting for science to reach a point where the poison can be flushed from their cells, predicted to be accomplished in 2,000 years. Ignoring the joymaker's attempts at a warning, Forrester quits on the spot. This facility has been in place for 180 years, so what's the likelihood of failure? He steps into the elevator, telling the joymaker to find him another job. But it does not. It's gone silent. He goes to Adney's house to ask the kids if he broke it, accidentally interrupting one of their meetings. "'What is it, Tunt?' he asks. "'Another club meeting? How about it, Mim?' The kids guffaw (laughs) in his face. "'You called me Tunt!' the boy laughs. "'And that's not the worst, Tunt!' his sister giggles. "'He called me Mim! Charles, don't you know anything?' The children get serious when they find out about Forrester's Joymaker and contact the Central Computing Facilities. Charles, great sweat, they say. You quit your job without notice. Apparently, Forrester forfeited his salary by doing this and is now totally broke. Terrified of what that might mean, he's in shock. The Central Computing Facilities might as well have cut his phone line and utilities due to lack of payment. He needs another job, but there's nothing the three of them can do with a dead joymaker and two junior ones. Maybe when Mim comes home she can help you, the boy says, though he's not certain. Perhaps Dr. Hara could help? Or Taiko Hiranibi could give him that job. There's a bigger problem. Heinzee is after Forrester again. Without a joymaker, he'll have no warning. Without any credit, the death reversal people won't freeze him if he dies. So it is possible Heinze could back out if he doesn't want to go into debt paying those fees for Forrester. Just to be safe, the girl makes a different suggestion after talking to the other members of her and her brother's club. Forrester can hide out with the forgotten men. Chapter 11 Without a joymaker or directions, Forrester gets himself back to the area where he and the children once walked, where he comes across a familiar face, a panhandler with an Australian accent he saw last time. After Forrester explains that he's now broke, the man introduces himself as Whitlow and warns him that people like them have to be careful, because without joymakers, there's nothing to stop pleasure-seekers from hunting them down for sport, inflicting total death on poor people. Whitlow wears a fake joymaker to fool them. Enjoying Forester's all-encompassing poverty and ignorance, Whitlow takes him under his wing. The Forgotten Men live in mazes built beneath enormous underpasses, doing fairly well for themselves. Whitlow isn't starving or dirty, he tells the story of his life, going from being laid off from the mine to becoming a student at MIT. Then he worked in a lab and everything was fine, but then he contracted lung cancer and was frozen to wait for a cure. Whitlow lives in an old evacuation center, one built before the Syrians were discovered and new ones were built. Most importantly, Whitlow teaches Forrester what to be afraid of. Men like them flee like rabbits down side streets and tunnels to escape both hunters and reporters. Freedom of the press allows them to know when hunting licenses have been filed so they can film the bloody scene and put it on the view walls for the masses to watch. This world belongs to the individual, each responsible for his own success or ruin, and Forrester is caught between being grateful for being alive and resentful that this world he's woken up to is so flippant about human life. So, Forrester becomes a panhandler. You have to be careful not to walk up to somebody who might be a thrill-seeker looking for a cheap murder to commit. No medical bills to pay. Tourists were usually best. On top of hunters and reporters, they have to watch for coppers, since what they're doing isn't strictly legal. Coppers are actually more of those robots connected to the central computing facilities, loaded with anesthetic sprays and projectile weapons. They recognize you by retina pattern, but won't bother you unless you're caught asking for money, or if you're wanted for something. Forrester enjoys himself. He walks around the underbuilding park in nice weather, seeing interesting people, women in bikinis, men with monkeys, and even someone clearly back from a long space flight. The spaceman asks about the two men and in return says that he works on satellites that relay information across the solar system. He gives them each $2,000. Forrester and Whitlow celebrate at a local hangout for forgotten men and women where you feed money into a slot for joymaker services to order food and drink. They pay for squirts of joy, $50, cocktails, $40, food, $25, and then Forrester loses count. They party alongside people from across 600 years and seven continents, as well as other planets and moons. The bulk of them are from closer to Forrester's time, the ones who struggled the most to fit in in the future. There is a poet who refuses to take grants, a ballet dancer convinced the Stalinists are after her, a man older than Forrester who can only speak Italian due to lobe damage, and so on. They all revel in the sort of freedom that comes with hitting rock bottom. Quote, Adolf Berl, What does a corporation want? They answer, The state has become a corporation. Forrester, too, gleefully spends all his money on drinks. You can't go into debt because credit isn't treated the same way. You spend till you have nothing. Unfortunately, the alcohol brings out Forrester's snappy side again, and he berates Whitlow for telling him to take it easy on his spending, hurting the other man's feelings since Whitlow has done so much to help him. A red-haired Martian, Giant, a lot like Heinsey, breaks them up, getting Forrester's name for the first time. He says there's a Syrian that's been looking around for a Charles D. Forrester. Before the man can go, Forrester interrupts him, another bad habit, and says he doesn't care about that. He's more interested in the Martian's German accent and Irish appearance, though neither of those things means anything to the Giant. In the morning, the party is a hazy memory, and Forrester is hungover, without a joymaker to tell him when he's had enough. He vaguely recalls that something bad happened, but doesn't want to think about it. Maybe the life of the Forgotten Men isn't for him either. Panhandling is all about taking from society without really putting anything back in, and if he has a choice, he'd rather contribute, even if it means doing it in the somewhat vapid way this modern society views work. Surely there was something he could do. Forrester reconnects with Whitlow and asks if he knows how to get a job. Whitlow says he needs to have a bit of money to start before anyone will hire, and what luck! The Spaceman has come back! However, Whitlow has a bad feeling this time. Forrester follows him and running away out of habit, not sure if there's real danger or if this is just more cowardice typical of this era. Everyone terrified of death when immortality is available. But Whitlow was right. The Spaceman's hovercraft is following them, and the Spaceman himself is on the ground with a whip. He catches Whitlow by the neck, slamming him on the ground, and Forrester runs the other way. Forrester manages to cross a busy highway while a copper watches him curiously, and from where he watches as his friend and mentor Whitlow is whipped repeatedly. Unable to watch him die, Forrester runs again, but is caught by the copper. It has a message for him. The Syrian is offering Forrester his old job back. Forrester hastily accepts, and the copper points him in the direction of a waiting hovercar. The Syrian is waiting outside, dressed in a mushroom-shaped pressure suit, only its ring of green eyes visible. It touches him with something that glitters and stings, and Forrester passes out on the ground. Chapter 12 In the flyer, Forrester wakes up to see Adney. She's wearing a funny-looking suit with lots of eyes. "'Dear Charles,' she says, "'you are ready to perform your programmed tasks?' "'What programmed tasks?' Pain erupts in Forrester's skull, and he remembers." "'You are Adney Benson,' he says. "'As a joke, you want me to smuggle you onto a starship. "'I must carry you aboard and plug in the command unit you have given me "'to the starship circuits and tell no one, "'or it will spoil the joke and hurt me.'" Forrester feels very sleepy and disoriented. Time moves strangely, and it's already night. Why did Adney remind him who she is over and over? Now he's outside the flyer pushing the floating pressure suit through a port. He's, quote, connecting something flat and shiny to jacks on an instrument board, unquote. Again, he's in the flyer, head splitting with pain, and he wakes up when the flyer stops to drop him off exactly where it picked him up. 24 hours of his life are missing. He no longer has money, no longer has Whitlow. He makes the inevitable trudge back to Adney's condo. A bit surprisingly, she lets him in, but she and the kids are focused on the view wall. He listens, too. The lift ship appears to have evaded orbital patrols, and so it must be assumed to be on its way to Sirius itself. Radar net surveillance detected it at launch, and appropriate challenges were issued, but there was no response. Meanwhile, there is much concern at every level of authority. There can be no doubt that there must have been human complicity in the escape, yet no Joymaker monitors have registered any such event, nor can any motive be found. The Alliance for Solar Syrian Amity has voluntarily offered all of its members for mind-probing, Eight registered nihilist obliterative organizations have been questioned about statements of policy suggesting that, in one formulation or another, all of humanity should destroy itself. No information suggesting complicity has emerged, but transcending any question of guilt are the considerations of consequence. One fact is beyond argument. Assyrian has managed to begin the long trek back to his home planet, undoubtedly carrying with him the information that Earth is the culprit of the destruction of Assyrian spacecraft. Experts in Syrian psychology declare that the result will be war. Forrester no longer needs to ask Adney if she was with him yesterday. Chapter 13 Forrester remembers being a child with a slingshot, shooting pebbles at cars. One hit a policeman in the eye and caused him to swerve into another car. No one died, but for a long time, little Charles lay awake at night convinced he would be arrested at any moment not knowing the whole incident had been written up as an accident caused by a bit of loose gravel being flung by a tire. He feels like that again. It's all so clear now. The Syrian had searched for someone ignorant and pliable enough to be given a hypnotic drug and used in his plan to board an unused spaceship. At least Adney is being kind to him, letting him wash up and sleep. He wakes up to her and Taiko Hironibi talking. While Adney is aghast that the Syrian slipped away, Taiko isn't surprised. The reliance on machines made it easy. At first Tycho is angry to see Forrester, but he calms down, having taken some sort of euphoria spray and excited by current events like everyone else. He decides to forgive Forrester for the insults of their first meeting. Still not overly fond of the Luddite, Forrester knows he needs a job. He puts on his best act, saying how he agrees with Tycho that the machines are taking over, that everyone should have listened to Tycho so the Syrian couldn't escape. With Adney's amused help, he gets Tycho to offer him a job, while the view wall continues to show footage of mass panic. As they sit down to eat and enjoy energy sprays, Forrester is contacted via Tycho's joymaker. The Syrian who escaped left behind a sort of will endowing its estate to various places. The League of Interspatial Amity, the Shago Central Gilbert and Sullivan Guild, the Unity Fraternity of Peace Clubs, and Forrester. The alien left him $91,763,042. God bless, cried Adney. You're rich again, Charles. Why, you lucky creature! Forrester feels numb, as if he was just given a fortune in laundered money. At the same time, Adney and Tycho keep reacting to the view wall with either fear or stimulation. If something is to be done, it's not them who will do it. They'll be part of the masses off to the freezers when the time comes. So while the kids are away doing drills, the adults will go relax. Much as Forrester would rather stay here and watch the view wall, he allows himself to be dragged along to crawl, though he still doesn't know what that entails. Adney is starting to get annoyed with how slow Forrester is to move on to the next activity, losing her patience with how slow he can be to adapt. He's especially sluggish today, his mind preoccupied with questions about finding an authority he can confess to. Eventually, he decides he will do that, but not quite yet. For now, he'll try to fit in. They go to a place that might as well be an adult carnival. Aphrodisiac spray hangs in the air. Shocking things are sold at booths. There are also beautiful flowers, grapes and berries, and hanging plants. As they descend into a fortress with many other couples and groups, Forrester is getting into the swing of things, enjoying Adney's attention and Tycho's company. Everyone in the crowd starts taking their clothes off as they enter a domed lounge. All at once, the door closes and the air is filtered, leaving them all naked and sober. A new gas is released and Forrester experiences a heightening of all his senses at once. He looks at barefaced Adney, and she looks at him and she says, you're nasty inside. He takes this slap to the ego and replies, You're a trollop. I think your children are illegitimate too. Shut up and crawl, Tycho says. The argument of bitter insults continues. It's happening all around them, but Forrester is focused on Adney, who he wants to be in love with. She calls him a kamikaze, tells him to let it all out. He's jealous, isn't he? I bet you're not even pregnant, Forrester says angrily. All that talk about picking a name, you probably just wanted to trick me into marrying you. Adney is stunned, then disgusted. "'Sweat, I meant our reciprocal name,' she snaps. "'Charles, you talk like an idiot.' "'You're both idiots,' Tycho says. "'Crawl!' The floor is beginning to flood with some sort of mud, and everyone is getting down into it. Forrester's senses are overcome with another gas like LSD, or superbenzedrine. He hallucinates sounds and new colors. Everything inside his mind bubbles to the surface uninvited, and he says them out loud. "'Jealous,' Adney replies.' Typical manipulative ownership, filthy inside, trashy. Why shouldn't I be jealous, Forrester says. I loved you. Tycho sneers at them. She's a brainless blot of passions, but she's human, and how dare you try to own her. Finally, the only one standing, Forrester drops to his knees. Everyone is slinking through the mud, letting out some of their inner animal, having exchanged insults but no punches. Helps you to get out the rot, Tycho says, the secrets that fester. Now the thoughts that want to pour out of Forrester's mouth are everything to do with the Syrian escape. He climbs to his feet, pushes through the fog of truth, and runs to the dressing chamber to be washed. A pile of clothes for him includes a new joymaker. He orders coffee and a cigarette, and sits down to ask some questions. First of all, he learns that this was called a crawl session, a sort of therapy meant to release tensions and inhibitions. Second, he learns that a reciprocal name is sort of like a pet name, or a nickname, This name is shared between two people. Adney's household has several. The children call each other Tunt. Parent and child call each other Mim. Adney and Dr. Hara call each other Tip. It's only confusing if you don't realize that's what people are doing, like if you didn't know who Mom was. Third, Forrester doesn't want to lose all his money. The Joymaker goes ahead and invests a big part of his fortune in the Sea of Soup, which will pay about $11 million a year. Suddenly, the Joymaker lets him know that Heinze is on his way here, already making his way through the crawl chamber with weaponry. Chapter 14 Getting himself outside, Forrester sees the death-reversal vehicle hovering nearby. At first he plans to run, but realizes at last that there's no real point. Heinze walks up to him and tells him to fight as the crowd of carnival-goers circles them to watch. Soon they're wrestling on the ground, and Forrester is fighting for his life against the giant man. The last of his grasp on civilization disappears, and in his fury at all he has had to put up with, Forrester gains the upper hand and bludgeons the Martian to death. He is in shock. The Death Reversal people take care of Heinzi, while Forrester tries to come to terms with the terrible fact of what has happened, that he took a life. Adney and Tycho lead him home to his newly prepared condo. Nice fight, Charles, Tycho says shock you up of course hell i remember my own first killing nothing to be ashamed of forrester wants Tycho to go away no longer chained to the ned lud society by poverty and the man gets angry exasperated by forrester's prickly behavior are you with us or against us he demands to know i guess i'm against you forrester says you make me sick Tycho spits you of all people You, who have suffered so much from this age, don't you want to try to cure the evils of machine domination? Tycho decides that Forrester has had a hard day and isn't himself. I'll be hard to reach, because... Well, never mind why, he says, but I'll leave a special channel for you. Because I know you, Charles, I know that you'll have to decide you want to end these cowardly times and give man back his... All right, I'm going. Chapter 15 Forrester sleeps and wakes and wonders why no one is arresting him. He ignores the 45 messages that come in during the first day, opting to eat interesting foods, listen to music, and read. The second day, he gets 70 messages. He watches the news to learn that the Syrian attack is not expected for a few weeks at least. The third day, he gets only 12 messages and ignores them too. He begins asking the joymaker to tell him where he went wrong with Adney. It lists various social offenses, refusing to choose a reciprocal name, he didn't properly fight with Heinze when he should have, he let himself fall into poverty, he criticized her other relationships. Forrester is depressed over Adney, but he is a mess regarding the Syrians, as well as the permanent death of his friend Jerry Whitlow. Quote, He still did not know what the joymaker meant by saying that Whitlow was returned to reserve, It seemed to mean that Willow's body had been used as raw material, perhaps in one of the organic lakes like the Sea of Soup, from which the world's food supplies came. But Forrester was too repelled by that notion to follow it any further. Today there are no new messages, and Taiko Hironibi is the only person who seems to really want to talk to him, having left special instructions six days ago. It's been a full 19 days since Forrester entered this depressive state, he is hurt that his so-called friends haven't come to visit and make sure that he's all right. At first, Forrester decides he's not going to be arrested and leaves his condo, only to enter a silent world. No one is anywhere in the building. No one is walking outside. No cars are on the highway. He asks the joymaker and it says, Adney Benson and her children, Man Forrester, at present are being processed for storage in Sub Lake Emergency Facility 9. You mean they're dead? Forrester asks in shock. Clinically dead, man Forrester, yes. It turns out that 98% of the population has chosen to enter cryogenic storage in preparation for potential Syrian invasion. To do so, they either ended their own lives, or had others do it, as Heinze had Forrester take him out during the fight. Feeling as though Forrester is responsible for the death of the entire human race, he goes to find Tycho. Chapter 16 An automated air cab takes Forrester to the Ned Ludd Society headquarters, but Tycho isn't there. So Forrester finally listens to his missed message. That you, Charles? Glad to hear from you. I'm busy now, but I'll be in touch when I get a chance. Only don't refuse my message this time, will you? Forrester has to wait for Tycho to contact him, so he walks around the empty city of Shago. The only people he sees are actually robots. His self-imposed exile helped Forrester get through his feelings of guilt realizing now that he was just a tool and the Syrian would have used someone else if not him. But he's baffled by the response of the masses to the threat of invasion. He has to remind himself that death is no longer permanent, that it's more like trying to flee to a neutral country for safety during a war. He thinks the people of 2527 AD to be chickens. There are no more forgotten men, no more Adney Benson. Sitting in Adney's condo, Forrester tries to contact Tycho again. He considers filing for a hunting license that would force the Joymaker to work its hardest to make a connection, but he can't do it. There is, however, a message from Tycho that isn't addressed directly to him, so he has the view wall show that. It's a weird story called Girl Goldilocks and Terror of Bears, narrated by a large woman. Bears, she says. Think of bears. Great biting creatures, shaggy-haired, smell of animal sweat and rot. A bear can kill a man, crunch, crush his head, smash, crash his spine, zip, rip his heart. The joy-maker says there's some kind of malfunction, and Forrester has to watch the whole thing while it works on it. The brutal retelling of Goldilocks ends with the girl waking up before the bears can get her. What a terrible thing to happen to a little girl, and all because she rejected her parents, the woman says. Now please prepare to answer questions on the theme. Is it wise to take chances on going to places your father or mother do not approve? The Joymaker apologizes for making Forrester wait, then it too malfunctions and stutters. The mass movement of people to freezing facilities is causing a lag in the central computing facilities, causing the Joymaker to be late in issuing its warning that coppers are coming for him. Chapter 17 The coppers come in, seize Forrester, and load him into a hovercar, saying only, your arrest has been ordered, Man Forrester. Do you wish a process of the charge against you? He says yes, but the robotic coppers answers Loop, asking the same question without answering it. Your arrest has been ordered, Man Forrester. Do you wish a process of the charge against you? They land, and Forrester is led through passages under the lake to a prison cell. There, Tycho contacts him through the view wall. He's incredibly relieved to see the Luddite, explaining there is something wrong with the machines. Number one. Tycho says, There's nothing wrong with the machines. In fact, something's going right with them. And, number two, of course you're in jail. Who do you think brought you here? The easiest way to transport Forrester with the hacked computers was to have him arrested. Now, what Tycho needs to know is if Forrester is with him on this mission to free humanity from the machines to smash the central computers. And Tycho isn't alone, he expands the view to show a full room. "'There are a few humans and many green, tentacled Syrians. "'You see, pal,' Tycho says, "'it's a matter of loyalties. "'Our friends here are kind of funny-looking, I admit, "'but they're organic.' "'Though Tycho can tell Forrester is unsure after seeing this, "'he decides it's best if he comes up to talk it over. "'Feeling very alone, Forrester leaves his cell and follows directions. "'His feelings are a jumble.' There's no one to help him, and he's still too ignorant about this world to know if the machines rule, if a government does, or if there is other leadership. He is, quote, in a world that had rejected him several times and was now dissolving around him, unquote. Should aliens help humanity improve when they don't seem to understand humans very well? He arrives, and Tycho slaps him on the back, congratulating Forrester on his role in the situation. He's giddy with excitement. Most of the sheeple are frozen, and the remaining people can reform society. The time to move is now, and it's clear Tycho doesn't think there's anything Forrester can do to interfere, even if he wanted to. They have control of the coppers and the death reversal vehicles to ensure everyone's safety. What about your friends here, Forrester wonders. Forget them, Charles, Tycho says. Don't fret yourself. They're just technical advisors. I'm the one that's running this show, and when we finish busting up the machines, they're going home. Tycho is sure about this, because Earth won't be any fun for the aliens once the central computing facilities are gone. Forrester wants to know why Tycho doesn't think the aliens are warlike, why he has faith in them. And the Luddite replies that he is smart and can spot an opportunity, and so he would know if the Syrians had their eyes out for an opening. Forrester is free to think about where he stands, because there's no one out there to help him. Leaving the Luddites to their plan, Forrester wanders around the prison until he comes across an exit and a death reversal vehicle with a copper. The robot only responds to him with the same statement of arrest. Forrester truly wants to thwart Tycho's plan, but doesn't know what to do, until suddenly he has a terrible idea. He finds himself wishing he had another insurance policy like the one he had in 1969. Climbing into the flyer, Forrester glumly finds himself a scalpel and writes a note that says, "'I can tell you what the Syrians are up to.' Then he slits his throat. Chapter 18 Forrester wakes up in the West Annex Center where he originally was revived. Dr. Hara is there with him, reminding him that he was brought here bloody and given paper to write out what happened with the Syrians. The aliens are now under watch by human guards, and Tycho has explained how to undo what they did to the computers. "'What's the penalty for letting the Syrian escape?' Forrester asks." "'About equal to the reward for letting us know about Tycho,' Hara says cheerfully. "'Don't worry about it.'" Assured that the Syrians are being dealt with and the human population is being revived, Forrester leaves the West Annex Discharge Center and meets up with Hara again for a serious talk. "'It's tough to know how to talk to you, survivors of the Kamikaze era,' the doctor says. "'You're sensitive about the strangest things. For instance, Adney said she thought you resented the fact that I was the father of one of her kids.'" Forrester is horrified that the children have two different fathers, and Hara continues to gently sift through the man's prejudices. "'What's a trollop? In your time, maybe that was something bad. I don't know. I'm not a specialist in ancient history.' "'But you aren't in your time anymore, Chuck.' "'I can't help thinking maybe Tycho was right,' Forrester says angrily. "'Somewhere the human race took a wrong turning.' "'You can't rewrite the history of the race,' Hara says patiently. "'It happened. This is the result.' If you don't like it, there's no reason why you can't try to persuade the world to change back again. To something different. Anything. Whatever you like. But you can't go back. Hara tells Forrester that Adney should be revived in about two days, and leaves him. The text says, Forrester stared after him. It would be hard, he thought, but it would be possible. And, after all, he had very little choice. So, Forrester hailed a flyer, and ordered it to take him to a suitable dwelling in Chago. Shago determined to face the future which as it turned out was very fortunate since he had a lot of future to face not just a few days or years but with the help of a few more visits to the freezer a fair number of millennia in all of which he was alive and active and well for he lived happily ever after and so did they all the end now that we've reached the end let's read the author's note Once upon a time, a quarter of a century or so ago, I was a weatherman for the United States Army Air Force in Italy. It was my first experience in the art of predicting real time events. That is, in the kind of prediction where money and lives are bet on its accuracy. This was a long time before the advent of the computer and the Fassimil machine and Tiros and all the other handy little gadgets that have since come reasonably close to turning meteorology into an exact science. Still, We had our gadgets even then, quite a few of them. Our group weather officer, in my part of the 15th Air Force, was a disheveled captain who smiled and nodded a lot, but rarely spoke. He would hum to himself for an hour or two as he pored over the teletype reports and the synoptic map and the adiabatic charts and the purips. Then he would go out to the instrument shelter and swing the psychrometer and tap the aneroid barograph with his fingernail and then he would climb on the roof of the station and perhaps he would see off on the horizon a cloud no bigger than a man's head and he would say, ha, looks like rain, and come back and make a bad weather forecast for the pilots of the B-24s. Actually, that's the way to write science fiction. Well, one kind of science fiction. There are many varieties of the science fiction experience. First, you do your homework with the books and the scientific journals. Then you talk to the astronomers and biochemists and computer people. And if you're lucky, perhaps you will they'll let you play with their machines and look through their lenses. And then you get up on a high place and look at the world around you. The age of the pussyfoot was constructed to those specifications. Little of it represents invention on my part, barring the personalities and some of the details of settings and events. Almost every aspect of it is visible right now, in July of 1968, as a cloud no bigger than a man's hand... And I, too, am forecasting rain. The Joymaker? MIT's Project Mac was what made me think of the Joymaker. Well, that's not quite true. I had thought of it before Project Mac ever existed, but certainly Mac is a sort of Jurassic ancestor of my toy. At MIT, two big IBM 7094s, plus half a dozen or so servant computers, are available to anyone with a remote access console in his home or office. The console, right now, can be anywhere a telephone line will go including europe if you like or for that matter antarctica my only additional assumption is that it will be convenient to do the same thing by radio the mac controls are presently about the size of biggish electric typewriters my only change involves micro miniaturizing them into portability and while you're at it fitting them with a few of such necessities of modern urban life as milltown contraceptive pills aspirin and the like I also assume that the pharmacopoeia of the next few centuries will be more extensive than our own, but that seems like a reasonably good bet. Immortality through freezing? Robert C.W. Ettinger has been on a crusade for that for more than five years now. The funny thing about it is that will probably work. I offer no money back guarantees, you understand, only an opinion. But it is an opinion shared by such prestigious men as Jean Rosand, France's most illustrious biochemist. The other funny thing about it is that there have been very few takers for this offer of immortality in the flesh. As Bob Ettinger says, many are cold, but few are frozen. There are fewer than half a dozen corpses currently in the deep freeze, although there are some hundreds of thousands of persons who would be, except that they haven't yet happened to die. But the facilities are there, including some three competing lines of the man-sized thermos bottles. With the liquid gas tanks that are now commercially available for those who would die and uh, live to die again i mentioned death reversal equipment in the story several years ago i saw an unpublished manuscript that stated apparently on good authority that the ussr had such vehicles in service then it implied that one of these had saved the life of the noted russian scientist lev landau who was dead four times clinically Incontrovertibly dead Before he was brought to life again Permanently enough to be released from the hospital And three months ago Parked outside the headquarters of the New York Academy of Sciences I saw the first American death reversal machine The New York DR vehicle is a truck Those in the story are helicopters Otherwise they are much the same It is true, however That no corpuscle has yet been thawed and returned to life And there's no firm estimate of when one will be Yet it could happen tomorrow The odds appear to be very great that it will happen sometime, and according to my personal reading of human psychology, the minute it does, we will have a rush to the freezers, comparable to no human migration since the opening of the Cherokee Strip. It strikes me that we are all, from birth, so often reminded that we are inevitably going to die, that we cannot accept an offer of immortality when it is presented, until and unless it is shown to work. Demonstrate that it works one time, and we will grab it, grab for it as we've grabbed for a few things before and then the building of such install installations as the west annex center will proceed apace the economic social and cultural predictions of the story are perhaps a little less defensible than the hardware but i think the reason for that is that economics and sociology at all are at the present time rather less scientific than the hard sciences are the money part of the story is pretty reliably stated Obviously, we will continue to have both of the two kinds of inflation that have been going on throughout history, both the devaluation of existing currencies, as the Roman solidus, worth several hundred dollars at least, was devalued over 200 years into the French, so worth not even a thank you, and the multiplication of things to spend money on, on, which is the psychological root of a good deal of the poverty of our own age and nation. America's poor usually do have enough money to survive on. It is the fact that they see around them so many desirable things, which they don't have money to buy, that makes them really, miserably, unarguably, poor. The notion of being paid a salary for things we might now consider to be properly unpaid, leisure time activities is not particularly fanciful, either. Witness the proposals of the guaranteed annual wage and the negative income tax. Witness institutionalized welfare programs, Witness how many leisure activities have already become paying professions. Who would have paid a salary to a ski instructor in the Middle Ages? Already in America, almost every large volunteer organization has a hardcore paid professional staff. It is not quite as common in Europe yet. I am only suggesting that the memberships, as well as the leaderships, might as well be paid for what they do. As to the mating customs, the interpersonal folkways and so on of my 26th century characters... "'I confess I am on shakier ground. "'I am not sure that things will go exactly this way. "'But form follows function. "'There is a need for a family even now, "'as a sort of nest designed for the raising of children, "'and there no doubt will be such a need "'in the foreseeable future. "'I do not think it will be the same need "'as in the recent past, however. "'Then there was enough work at home "'to keep an able-bodied woman busy from dawn to dusk, "'and enough work involved in earning a living "'to keep her husband away at the farm or factory "'almost every waking hour.' With the increase in leisure time and productivity of labor, especially in such external aids to child rearing as schools and nurseries, the functional need for the family is somewhat different. Our social structure has not yet really caught up with that fact, although the signs are writ large. I am only assuming that in 500 years it will have done so. A similar defense could be made for almost every speculation in this novel, including the presence of Syrians or, anyway, extraterrestrial creatures capable of doing the sort of thing that Syrians do in the story. There are more than 100 billion stars in our own galaxy, and it is dead certain that at least some of them have inhabited planets. But I should confess that there are two areas in which I am defenseless. One of these includes the things I have left out. I have not taken into consideration the probabilities of large-scale disaster. Through nuclear warfare or lethal pollution of the air, or a runaway population explosion sufficient to starve us all back to the Neolithic. But there's just so much you can discuss in one story. And I wasn't happening to discuss those possibilities here. And the other thing I can't defend is the timescale. If you put together Project Mac and Bob Ettinger's freezers and the negative income tax, you have something that is really quite a lot like the Age of the Pussyfoot, constructed out of materials that are on hand right now. In the novel, the timescale is large five centuries. Charles Forrester's revival is as far in one direction along our timescales as Christopher Columbus's voyages in the other. I don't really think it will be that long. Not five centuries. Perhaps not even five decades. Frederick Pohl, Red Bank, New Jersey, July 1968. It's time for our favorite game. Did the cover artist read the book? The short answer is... Maybe? Honestly, I'm tempted to say no, because this cover, while cool, would be, could be slapped on any book about cryogenic freezing. There's nothing about aliens, the neat technology, or anything else. So let's leave it there and move on. I described it in detail during the intro this book was a real roller coaster to get through. I chose it because I remembered all the little predictions about the future, but I forgot how many scientific references there are, how many little details are thrown in to make you feel like you've entered a future world of technology you don't understand. When you're reading it, sometimes feels like it was written in the 90s when it comes to predictions about phones, AI, and society, as if all the topics were within sight but not quite fleshed out yet. So it's crazy to keep in mind that Pohl wrote this in the years before humankind reached the moon. The computer that did that was weaker than an iPod Shuffle, and Pohl was able to foresee the onslaught of the internet, cell phones, video calls, viral videos, and comment sections. The Age of the Pussyfoot takes place in the year 2527 AD in the city of Chago, which I believe is what Chicago turned into seeing as Lake Michigan is nearby. It took me a long time to figure this out because i was reading shago spelled s-h-o-g-g-o as shogo as if it were japanese or something when you pronounce it shago it sounds a bit like chicago sped up or abbreviated uh abbreviated like nalens instead of new orleans I actually figured it out when Adney's kids mentioned something about Mrs. Leary's cow, referring to a Mrs. Catherine O'Leary who allegedly caused the Great Chicago Fire of 1871 when her cow knocked over a lamp. This was, of course, before Forrester's time. While we don't learn everything there is to know about Chago Chago and the world of the future, seeing as we don't have a copy of Your Guide to the 26th Century, 1970-1990 edition, We can learn a lot through Forrester's experiences. I'll come back to him later. The city of Shago, and possibly everywhere else, is run by Central Computation, the central computing facilities, with limited human oversight. It does this through home installments and joymakers, as well as robotic bank tellers, cafe servers, and law enforcement coppers. A joymaker is a sort of handheld remote control similar to a smartphone, except it surfers Surface is covered in pale patterns and colorful buttons that do many things, such as spray calming or stimulating mists. They can be clipped to your belt like a pager, which Forrester is familiar with. You communicate with the Joymaker via voice controls, and you can adjust the volume settings for privacy. Everyone has a personalized Joymaker that is tied to your biochemical makeup, acting as your ID, phone, remote control, health monitor, and more though you can allow other joymakers and robots to look up your personal information if you give them an express voice command. It should also be noted that you should not allow your joymaker to listen to children, (laughs) as they may use it to play games or mess with your settings. Unfortunately, the downside of this is that if you don't have a working joymaker on you, then central computation and the coppers don't recognize when you're in danger. They can see you and even recognize you, but they can't perceive your distress. Forrester's brief time with the Forgotten Men emphasizes the importance of a joymaker. Without one, the central computing facilities can't send out a death reversal vehicle to pick you up in the event of your murder, though you might be too broke for the freezing procedure anyway. This opens the door to an underground world of people hunting people for sport. Those with an interest in killing pretty much fade into the background of a society that accepts death and revival as just a part of life, never a final destination if you have cash resulting in the death of Forester's friend, Jerry Whitlow. On top of that, joymakers make it easy to spend money. From Forrester's perspective, joymakers are something of a monkey's paw. Be careful what you wish for, because you might not know the cost. The presence of the joymakers emphasizes that, like in the year 2023, this is a world of subscription services, rented condos, and quick-pay options. If humans use the machines, then the machines provide their services or counsel but if not, then the humans are free to live and die as they choose. Forrester makes a lot of hefty purchases early in the story because he doesn't stop to ask whether coffee, juice, ham, and cigarettes are easily accessible or expensive commodities in the distant future. While Forrester gets his money into a bank with the help of Adney's children, he uses it like a child playing gambling games on a smartphone, not realizing that every request has a price. In short, joymakers are a lot like funny-shaped smartphones that can be just as annoying with their constant notifications. They also kind of remind me of wands from Harry Potter, like the time when a man speaking in front of a crowd has his voice amplified by passing through all the other joymakers. It's magic! The people of the future have melded together into a melting pot of ethnicities to the point where most people don't know much about the ancestors from foresters' time they resemble. For example, the Martians are burly red-headed giants who appear Irish yet tend to have German names and accents, though they say the accent comes from a different atmospheric pressure leading to being unable to hear certain voice registers. Side note that Irish people show up in a lot of vintage sci-fi, possibly as future shorthand for minority discrimination, since redheads used to get a lot of flack for their poor immigrant ancestors. There's also Taiko Hironibi, who has a Japanese name and uh, and a blonde, blue-eyed European appearance. I'm less sure what ethnicity Adney Benson is meant to resemble, but Poll does describe her cloud of hair, which leads me to think she has some kind of afro, though not necessarily a black one. The seeds of this ethnicity were planted back in the 20th and 21st centuries when there were female as well as Russian-named presidents, indicating the swift cultural shifts that lead to feminism and acceptance of people from cultures once thought of as hostile. However, it seems some things never change, as the United States is still using feet and inches and paying with dollars. There are some social niceties that have changed in the last 558 years. This includes knowing not to step on Martian's feet, and showing up for a fight when you're being hunted. A heavily integrated custom is that of reciprocal names shared with someone close to you. This is a lot lot like a person calling their lover Honey or Babe, because both parties can use it for the other. In the future, friends will do the same thing, as well as family members. Tip is the reciprocal name between Adney and Dr. Hara, the name Forrester incorrectly believes is Adney's name when he meets her and causes confusion when he doesn't recognize the Adney Benson leaving him messages the next day. Natch is the name used between Adney and Taiko Hiranibi. Mim is the name Adney calls her children and that they call her in turn. And Tunt is the name the children have for each other. I really like how Paul wove this dynamic into the story because the reader is just as confused by it as Forrester for a long time. The reciprocal names aren't used enough to make it clear what's going on, and it's hard to figure out why the kids are so shocked when he calls them Tunt and Mim, having reasonably deduced these are their names. However, it's a little odd they never formally introduced themselves to him. Forrester actually seems sees the term reciprocal name mentioned in his guidebook, but he hasn't read the whole thing, and it means nothing to him in the context of programming a joymaker to recognize one. People of the future are very healthy. Medicine has reached a point where it can revive someone just after just about any kind of death. Adney Benson apparently drowned at one point, Heinze the Martian gets beaten by Forrester, and Forrester was reconstructed after horrific burns. Despite this, people still take precautions against dying. For example, they try not to insult each other so as not to spark an argument that could lead to someone filing for a hunting license. Adney tries to teach Forrester some common sense things, telling him not to sign up as a donor or as game if someone offers him a lot of money to do so, lest the long-term costs come back to bite him, though he doesn't really listen and the reader can only guess what she means. Probably greenhorns like Forrester are scouted for things like organ donorship or hunting games, and Adney makes sure her kids take prophylaxis meds before bed in order to prevent disease. Forrester comes to the wrong conclusion that people don't care about life anymore since they can afford to die. In fact, people care very much about living and doing it with integrity, simply taking precautions in case they do wind up dead and needing to pay for revival later. Death reversal is as tedious as visiting the dentist, but you can put it off a little if you take care of yourself. Future Homes Generally Belong to a Single Adult possibly living with children, and are fitted with view walls that interact with the joymakers and central computation. They act as televisions for news and reality TV, computer screens for Zoom calls, and part of the virtual reality system that projects images onto the eyeball for an immersive experience. Forrester is shown a VR recreation of the taped human mission to the star Mira, where the first Syrian ship was spotted and attacked. Children learn about this technology as well as how to navigate the world through their lessons, which are referred to as numbered phases. For example, Edney's son finished Phase 5 last year, when he learned how to fill out an employability profile. They learn about outer space as well, including star systems, the Syrians, and ancient artifacts that have been found scattered, acro- sc- scattered about that belong to a race far more ancient than either humanity or the Syrians. The examples the children tell Forrester about are one in the atmosphere of the planet Miraceti and something nicknamed the coconut on the moon. Quote, It was shaggy and rather egg-shaped. Its tendrils of whatever they were were not organic, Forrester thought. They were almost glassy in their brightness, reflecting and refracting the sunlight in a spray of color. Unquote. Keep in mind that Forrester died before anyone stepped on the moon. Presumably, children learn about history, too, like the Chinese Bolshevik counter-revolutionaries of 1991 and the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. Outside of the home, there are comfortable parks to play in with soft, rubbery sidewalks, as well as buildings full of cafes and entertainment that can be reached via hovercar. The city of Chago reminds me of Meet the Robinsons sometimes. Let's quickly go over a few more pieces of technology that Forrester sees or hears about without learning anything more. One is a sort of hypnotic taser used by the Syrians, the sort of technology not invented until the mid-70s. Another is a sort of USB or hard drive the Syrian uses to take over the ship it has Forrester sneak into, which seems to be different from a Joymaker. Someone mentions mind-probing as something that can be done when someone is suspected of criminal activity. Faster-than-light messages are possible. There are even retina scans like in Minority Report. There is also mention of something called the Sea of Soup, which Forrester indicates is where most food comes from and that he fears is a dumping ground for dead people like Whitlow who can't afford to be frozen or revived. Quote, He was not surprised to find out that Whitlow ha- was dead. He had seen that happen. Or to learn that his revival was problematical. But he still did not know what the Joymaker meant by saying that Whitlow was returned to reserve. It seemed to mean that Whitlow's body had been used as raw material, perhaps in one of the organic lakes like the Sea of Soup, from which the world's food supplies came. But Forrester was too repelled by that notion to follow it any further, and even so, he could not understand why Whitlow's revival would then be problematical." My guess is that it's pretty much impossible to put a wholly dismembered body back together, based on the fact that Forrester's own son David died in a brutal way and couldn't be frozen. While not why I picked this book, The Age of the Pussyfoot asks a lot of good questions about artificial intelligence and machine learning that we are currently asking ourselves as AI art, code, music, and other subject generators become not only viable options, but available to the public. Forrester finds himself in a time when humanity can run itself almost completely hands-off. Central computation connects everyone and everything together. Uh, like a maximized version of the internet providing people with answers jobs order fulfillment and messages it hasn't replaced every job since we know full well that the people are paid to work for organizations companies banks and law firms but it has blurred the line regarding what people have to do and what they choose to do on the other hand pussyfoot goes out of its way to indicate that the ai computers Forrester interacts with are not intelligent or emotional the way a human is More than once, Forrester tries to ask his joymaker for advice and has to reword the question several times to get the kind of answer he wants. While a human, or other sentient being, since there are aliens besides Syrians residing on Earth in the year 2527, would understand what Forrester was asking, the computer can only make suggestions based on its programming and the question's wording. It seems that there are bots designed for more comfortable or in-depth conversation, like the ones Adney's kids interact with on the view wall, but this isn't an I, robot situation. Much as I sympathize with artists and others who feel threatened by the rising availability of AI generators, I don't know that there's anything to be done now that the floodgates are open. There will be changes, ebbs and flows, new rules for dealing with this technology, and new jobs for those who manage how the technology is utilized. But there's no going back now that it's out there. Similarly, web designers feel slighted by companies like Wix and Squarespace for making it too easy for amateurs to make their own websites. I dislike content farms like Coco Melon or 5-Minute Crafts that pump out vapid entertainment for children that make it too easy for parents to lose track of what their kids are watching. Ice cutters lost to the refrigerator? Studios had to upgrade when talkie movies became the new big thing, and the debate around bots stealing work from artists across the internet is muddled by the fact that artists and musicians are always sampling each other's work, or painting in Van Gogh style, or using each other for inspiration in other ways while technically making completely original work. That is not to say that I support intellectual theft, but it does happen, and where you draw the line might be different from other people. The point i'm trying to make is that artificial intelligence and machine learning have to be treated as tools that can be utilized or abused like a smartphone remember when teachers used to say you needed to learn your math because you wouldn't always have a calculator with you well now we do and how do we deal with that i fully believe that math art music and other forms of creativity and critical thinking are important for humanity as a whole and i want to continue supporting the work of all the people i follow on instagram But I also can't think that it's possible to put a lid back on Pandora's box. Every piece of technology is a double-edged sword. The internet brought people together across the world while also revealing the darkest aspects of our nature. And we have to rely on the fact that more people want to let each other be than they want to call SWAT teams on each other as a prank. The Age of the Pussyfoot puts its main character in a difficult situation. It presents him with a gamble either report the Syrians' escape plan to save the status quo, or risk the possibility of human destruction to ensure their AI toys are taken away. Forrester ends up deciding that despite his grievances with the era he now lives in, he can't simply hit a big reverse button on the world. Yes, his death was reversed, but time was not. Time is not a sack of meat with that medical technology can one day piece back together with a mind and a heartbeat. His very life is reliant on time, marching forward into the current technological future, even though it comes with baggage. It is the dilemma we all face as we get older, no matter how progressive we were when we were young ones. The future challenges us. Let's get this straight. (laughs) I find Charles Dalglish... Forrester, what a name, his character to be pretty annoying. (laughs) He is stubborn and set in his ways and he spends most of his time whining about how he's not back in the good old days. He's quick to become irritated and lash out, calling people a drag or calling his computer a nag. However, I think he was written this way intentionally. It reminds me a bit of the film Everything Everywhere All At Once in that the main character is the best fit for the situation largely because she stumbled into it by stumbling over and over and over again. The Syrians take advantage of Forrester after a series of missteps, but he is able to sound the alarm when he finally admits to himself once and for all that this is the way the world is and there's no rewinding the clock. Even if he doesn't always like it, he doesn't want to see it all blown away by a Syrian attack. And the way he sounds the alarm is by giving in to the death reversal system, uh, often shortened to DR, until the end of the book, Forrester tried so hard to avoid discomfort and death, unable to accept that society works a certain way now, but when push came to shove, he embraced the system as the lesser of two evils compared to the Ned Ludd Society's outdated version of freedom. Much as I love the movie Beetlejuice, it's hard not to be a bit annoyed with Adam and Barbara for not reading their handbook for the recently deceased. In the case of The Age of the Pussyfoot, Forrester neglects to keep track of and read what is essentially his handbook for the recently revived. (laughs) I once heard someone say that they struggle to like Harry Potter in his own book series because he finds out about a world of magic and doesn't spend every waking moment learning about it, pointing out that Hermione's obsession with studying therefore makes a lot more sense. For the same reason, Forrester's bad attitude is hard to stomach sometimes. To his credit, Forrester usually doesn't delude himself about being a great man. He is guilty about a weekend in 1962 that probably involved cheating on his wife. He bows his head when he realizes how wrong he's been about something. But he rarely tries to do anything about it or prevent himself from getting cocky the next time around, becoming upset with everyone else instead. This is largely due to his impatience. Forrester rarely asks good questions and almost never pauses to listen to answers already being provided. For example, when Tycho arrives the first time, it's to offer him a job, but Forrester just assumes it's some sort of charity that wants his money and nothing more. He doesn't pause to think about how things have changed, that it's possible hobbies have essentially become jobs, and even when he does learn that he can basically be paid for doing something enjoyable, Forrester is judgmental of everyone doing just that. Let's go back to the beginning. Forrester died at the age of 37 after climbing into a burning building to save a child and being horrifically burned. Representative of his tendency to jump headfirst into dangerous situations as well as his empathy for others hidden beneath the sass. He was a volunteer fireman married to Dorothy with three sons, Vance, David, and Wilton, the youngest of whom would go on to become President of the United States. A local millionaire donated money that allowed the fire department to have an insurance plan that covered new cryogenic freezing technology, and Forrester's friends insisted he be put in. He was likely one of the very first to enter the freezer, and it took 558 years for medical technology to reach a point where it could reconstruct him. Several weeks before the party at the start of the book, Forrester woke up after being thawed and spent a while doing physical therapy with others like him before he was welcomed into a new world via the West Annex Discharge Center where Dr. Hara works. During that time, he had taken special, tingly oil baths and slept in a bed of golden poinsettia plants. My guess is that these are genetically altered poinsettias that boost any inherent health benefits. While this is a historical medical plant, there is some debate as to whether using them is really good for you. Hara throws a party to celebrate Forrester's new life, and possibly others we don't see, and he invites lots of interesting people to it. This is where Forrester first encountered Heinze the red-headed Martian giant and stepped on his toes while everyone danced, a grave offense. And it is where Forrester met Adney Benson, not realizing she was at the party as a close friend of Hara's, learning much, much later that she and the doctor have a child together. Although Adney seems perfectly happy as a single parent. From here, the events of the story unfold over the course of a little more than a week. This and the small portions of the Guide to the 26th Century that Forrester actually reads makes it abundantly clear how little Forrester knows, and the text reaffirms this constantly. He acknowledges this, this fact himself when it occurs to him that he must be like a caveman to the people of the future, looking at hovercraft as a chariot driver might look at an automobile. Even the slightly erotic term, joymaker seems designed to make him uncomfortable. To his credit, again, Forrester is good with children despite their overtly honest nature, so with time he'll probably accept the nutty world around him. The Shago residents we meet often display behaviors that, to Forrester, are almost childlike. They don't enjoy champagne, they don't rely on coffee, opting instead for refreshing minty and lemony drinks, or low-alcohol drinks like Berliner Weiss, and they don't smoke. The Age of the Pussyfoot was written just as Americans were starting to discover the keystones of the 1970s, and was published in 1969, the same year as Woodstock. Paul's version of the future feels a little like the free love movement if the drugs were safer and the AIDS crisis never popped up. Or, if it did, the future marched forward into sexual liberation anyway. When Forrester learns that Adney is natural flow, implying she lets herself have a period, he reacts as if she's a teenage daughter talking about it. He is, after all, the father to three boys, and grew up in a time when women kept that kind of thing to themselves. His desire to enjoy the future at that first party quickly dissolves into Forrester acting like an old man, no matter what he does asking children for help with technology, and normal bureaucratic processes. What Forrester neglects to notice is that while the people around him seem to be adverse to commitment and standing up to their war enemies, they actually have become very desensitized to violence and gore and sex, and that that was once considered obscene. Their priorities and emotional triggers have shifted, their concerns more to do with personal grievances than anything else. Relationships with other people have actually strengthened and deepened, it seems, but Forrester is distracted by all the other changes and doesn't realize this. The mass move towards suicide and locking themselves in the underground freezers until the Syrian threat passes comes across as cowardly and pathetic, when really the philosophy seems to be, he who fights and runs away may live to fight another day. Considering that humans destroyed a Syrian ship first before running off, this is the case in my opinion. I love the inclusion of the character Adney Benson. She seems specifically designed to make a red-blooded American man uncomfortable. Everything Forrester learns about her makes him more uneasy, while making it ever clearer that she exists as a confident, independent, autonomous agent of her own fate, if a little superficial. First, she is a woman of the future, utilizing sprays and joymakers and technology to its fullest without a second thought, wearing skin-tight clothes in a way that reminds me of reactions to the 80s in the movie Time After Time. Second, she works as a sort of fashion critic reminiscent of a social media influencer whose taste aligns with trends and the public's preferences, which earns her a lot of money for something that seems not to take very much effort. Third. Adney is a single mother to two children and may be open to having another out of wedlock. Fourth, she speaks openly about natural flow, referring to her choice not to have her body's menstrual cycle and hormones be fully regulated by medicine. Fifth, she's not afraid to yell at Forrester or speak her mind. Sixth, she hangs out with other men like Tycho as well as Forrester and isn't so dedicated to Forrester that she won't call Heinze over to fulfill a hunting license properly. Seventh, she is not only unmarried, something that is seemingly out of the fashion, out of fashion in the future, but also had relationships with multiple men to result in her two children. By the end of the book, Forrester is saying that he loves Adney. But I'd say this is more of an attachment born of loneliness in a brand new society. Though once he stops seeing her as just female and more of a whole person, his feelings might deepen to real love. That's not to say he didn't love Dorothy, but she didn't challenge him the way Adney does, and existed as women mostly had to in her time period. It's unclear whether Dorothy was ever frozen, stashed away until one day the aging process can be reversed enough to revive someone who died from old age, or her new husband. And despite Forrester's discomfort with the woman's choices, her kids are well-behaved, outgoing, well-adjusted, and polite. My favorite quote from the text is one about Adney Benson and comes from Tycho when he says to Forrester, She's a brainless blot of passions, but she's human, and how dare you try to own her! To me this really drives home the point of Adney's character. The point is that it doesn't matter whether Forrester respects anything about her, because she is a person free to do as she pleases, regardless of his comfort. Just as Hera and Tycho do as they will, so does Adney as well as a female president of the past we hear about at one point. Considering how few people Forrester has gotten to know, this statement is a punch to the gut, because he can no longer use Adney as the emotional refuge he wanted her to be when they met. And I'm not claiming that Adney is a perfect vision of womanhood, actually just the opposite. She is meant to be a person with vices and shortcomings, not merely a shallow woman. Society accepts Adne for what she is. Forrester struggles to do the same since the story only covers about a week of his new life after revival pretty much all we get to see are his gut reactions born of a time hundreds of years prior imagine someone from the year 1465 trying to have a conversation with a modern woman without balking at nearly every part of her lifestyle and yet adni is not adverse to old ideas keeping her period rather than allow medical intervention to control her hormonal cycles because she enjoys the sexual highs despite the lows just as Tycho Hironibi continues to utilize te- technology despite his grand ideas about how much better people would be without machines, Adney doesn't subscribe to every single modern convenience available to her. For this reason, she is interested in Forester when others might dismiss him as a man of the past. There are a few political terms thrown around that never get a proper explanation, but we can glean the meaning of. Tycho is an Arcadian, and Adney is a trimmer, or maybe a naturalist. An Arcadian refers to someone who lives a simple, quiet life, or a sort of peasant in a rural paradise, which reflects Tycho's desire for the world to return to simpler times. When Forrester shows everyone at the party how to drink champagne, Adney says, You almost make an Arcadian of me! She is enjoying the old-fashioned use of alcohol for excitement. Her kids actually talk about Tycho as a utopian, which I think is interesting since it draws attention to the fact that the future is very comfortable, but not quite a utopia. And some people think utopia existed in the past, the good old days. Meanwhile, I would guess that a trimmer is someone who prefers the modern way of doing things while making choices about trimming a few excessive practices, like complete hormonal regulation. So, as we discussed, Adni is someone who enjoys the modern world, but is willing to take a metaphorical step backwards when she feels it's to her benefit. While Adney is open to people from the past, Taiko Hironibi pretty much desires to be one, or at least thinks he does. Taiko is an interesting character, full of contradictions and swirling modern ideas. On the one hand, he feels that the machines and computers have taken away what it means to be truly human, but on the other, he doesn't want to lose all of the modern conveniences he enjoys. Even his name and clothes reflect the fact that he is a product of globalization and connection, wearing a kilt, being blonde, and having a Japanese name. The appearance of Japanese people or words isn't uncommon in sci-fi from this era because the West was starting to notice that Japan was getting culturally stronger and popular in the decades following World War II. Anyway, Taiko's got a little bit of that make humanity great again mentality without stopping to think about what time period he really wants to emulate, going for a more general machine-bad philosophy while happily using machines to spread his message. The only distinctly different activity we see him partake in is when he and Forrester sit down for breakfast and he has with him a Tupperware uh, has Tupperware containers, rather than ordering from the wall nook. It's not clear if he knows which machines should be deemed necessary and which ones are the root of evil. Taiko is a leading member of the Ned Ludd Society, which takes its name directly from the Luddites of the 1800s, who were textile workers destroying textile machinery in the name of a famous weaver named Ned Ludd, spelled with two d's instead of one. The movement started because workshop owners had to close their doors as factories began producing cheaper products, then struggled to find work because factories didn't need as many laborers. This scenario perfectly encapsulates the problems we are having with AI in the 21st century. This concern for disappearing jobs and skills as machines take our place. Unfortunately, in the context of Paul's book, by the time Taiko Hironibi entered the conversation, there was really nothing to be done. Pandora's box had already been opened, much as Taiko wants to slam the lid back on. Ironically, Taiko was... Not put out of work by a machine? (laughs) He gets his money from the Ned Ludd Society by promoting it, recruiting, and making strange propaganda material meant to influence children by using the very machines he claims to hate. While he seems to really believe what he's saying, his tactics are reminiscent of American right-wing movements that use fiery rhetoric and and black-and-white statements despite benefiting from socialist policies and modern ideals. This comparison is strengthened when you consider how someone promoting these kinds of ideas can then be used by others to create harm and chaos. I do apologize for touching on politics, but I point out that I want to point out that aspects of the Syrians usage of Tycho reminds me of Putin's alleged manipulation of President Trump. It was all in the name of returning to some mythological time of grandeur, while ignoring the long-term ramifications of accepting aid from hostile outsiders. By being stuck in the past and dedicated too strongly to certain ideals, Tycho becomes gullible and vulnerable. Interestingly, Tycho is also the only modern character who swears in the book, using words like hell instead of sweat when he's upset. While reading The Age of the Pussyfoot, I found myself thinking about The Show podcast by Linus Tech Tips. Specifically, the December 2nd, 2022 episode called Why Do I Keep Getting Called Out? In it, Linus and Luke discuss the advent of machine learning and artificial intelligence as a tool. I won't rehash the whole thing, but basically they agree that this is the aforementioned Pandora's box and there's no going back now that the technology is out there. It doesn't matter if you like it or not because it's there. Insert Jurassic Park reference here. Artists of all kinds are understandably upset and intimidated, and so are people who work with code, do hair restoration surgery, or are in other fields where a bot could produce the same thing they do. It is scary to think about your job, your artwork, becoming obsolete. However, they do make the point that this isn't a full replacement for human effort. To get good results with a bot, which doesn't actually understand what it's doing on an intellectual level, you need people who know how to work with it, how to mold its answers so they are correct and founded. In their words, a bot is confident about its answer, whether that answer is right or wrong. It will be confidently wrong. This is not dissimilar to Google, which might give you the most popular answer to your search rather than something researched and cited. The AI of the future, Pol has imagined, seems to work similarly. There are moments when it becomes very clear to Forrester that the machines work within the parameters they were designed for, and nothing more. They can be hacked, they can watch people get hurt, they can imitate human behavior and service jobs, but that doesn't mean they are inherently bad. While Forrester is unnerved by their presence, they actually fit into roles that allow humanity to live freely. At least in the city, we never see anything about uh, outside of Shago. No more abused customer service workers. Yes, there are gaps in the system. We see them when Forrester loses all his money and joins the forgotten men and women, but it seems like those people fall through very specific cracks. In relation to the AI art argument, Forrester meets an artist who refuses to accept money from the system for his art, preferring to be poor rather than take the grants that would let him live comfortably. I want to be clear that I'm not saying homelessness is a choice. America is rife with systemic problems that make it painfully easy for people to end up on the street after one or two financial hits. But I do want to point out that Forrester is seeing the future of Shago through the eyes of a 20th century American and doesn't know all the systems that might be in place to help people who were revived after centuries. The forgotten people he meets have language issues, morality uh, opinions, and mental health problems that are going unsolved, but there seem to be a lot more people above in their cars and condos than there are living under the roadway. Yes, everyone fends for themselves. But there are people like Dr. Hara to show you how. And we see that things like crawling are in place to let people get out their negative feelings and inhibitions. So presumably there are other therapy options as well as uh, that aren't as so public. Really, this world is like Alexa and other voice apps on steroids, allowing the introverts of the world to control their lives from the comfort of their home, a friends home, a cafe, anywhere they want. If you look at the internet, the bad things that have come with it are really just amplified human problems and revealed darkness. When used as a tool for connection and reflection, it can do beautiful things. Heck, look at Gen Z, they are very progressive and forward-thinking because they've lived their whole lives the way city folk have lived for thousands of years. It's harder to hate people who are different from you when you see them and hear them, hear what they have to say, and know they can be good. It's harder nowadays to be a sheltered backwater kid when the internet is there to show you there is good out there. But at the same time, the internet is a tool to be handled carefully. It won't protect you, you have to learn how to do that yourself hopefully with the help of others. As for money, the text doesn't accurately reflect how inflation works, but Pohl seems to kind of acknowledge this in his author's note. But he does make a good point about the fact that the medical procedures that would bring a person back to life would be ungodly expensive in the 20th century, were they available, and that only changes somewhat as the centuries roll by. I am curious if the future city of Chago represents what the whole world has become or just the United States as medical care seems to still cost a lot of money, despite its superiority and availability. As I said before, Americans are at risk for financial hardship if they have even one big thing happen, and we can't control accidents and illness the way we can opt for a less expensive house or lifestyle. From what we see, it seems like there's almost no health insurance at all in Chago, aside from what Forrester had. There doesn't seem to be a government-backed healthcare plan to keep people alive, and there does seem to be a government, as well as a capital. Federal city is mentioned in a new bullet, uh, news bulletin. There's something about it that reminds me of how samurai lived in the final days of Japan's imperial-slash-shogun era. Most people think of samurai as distinguished warriors, which isn't untrue, but after a hundred years without major war, they were just a high caste of people carrying swords and receiving a government stipend. Unfortunately, when inflation isn't taken into account, that stipend gets smaller and smaller until you are squeezed and poor while not being allowed to work. So, samurai took to the black market, gambling, and paid fights. This sort of sumo street fighting eventually produced modern sumo wrestling with rules and regulations, but there was a period of time when samurai were just doing what they could to scrape by. It seems to me like the city of Shago should probably have some sort of minimum income available for people who struggle to work, and they could definitely do with some indiscriminate killing regulations. A few security cameras plugged into the central computing facilities would probably do the trick. But I digress. Before we move on, I'll quickly mention what my LGBTQ listeners might be thinking. In this advanced future society of sex and VR games, where are the non-straits and non-binary people? And to that, I will have to remind you that this book about a single person over the course of a single week was written in the 1960s, before we had even landed on the moon, only 30-some years after we uh, had the first computer developed during World War II. By a gay man, I might add. As far as transgender and gender-neutral topics go, the book references them in that Forrester is asked this question during his employability survey. If you happened to be a girl, would you wish you were a boy? Aside from that, the narrative remains focused on Forrester and people who seem to fit neatly into male man and female woman. We have to appreciate Frederick Pohl for the feminist spirit he brought to his novel because feminism is about equal rights for all, and that's the point he seems to be making, probably while working with a limited vocabulary compared to what is normal today. And we can't deny that even now in the 21st century, there are people who get very angry when they find find out a woman they're dating is a single mother to two children with different fathers, a woman who talks openly about her period, a woman who won't coddle you when consequences are breathing down your neck, a woman free to love you or leave you as she sees fit. That being said, Adney is pretty patient with Forrester, possibly more so than other women would be, since she's good friends with Dr. Hera and forgives Forrester for being from the past and old-fashioned, a lot like Tycho is. Vapid as she is accused of being, she might be far more compassionate than Forrester realizes. We don't speak with any other adult female characters. Most other people probably wouldn't give him the time of day after the way he's behaved, and it seems like Adney was reaching the end of her rope by the time Forrester had to save the world from alien invasion. And how many people would put up with Taiko Hironibi's talk of wiping out machines, but someone very patient? Adney still seems to be pulling the weight emotionally in her and Forrester's relationship, but we see her quickly starting to get tired of it. Even during Adney and his first meeting, he admits to himself that he's not really interested in what she has to say so much as looking at her. Let's move on to the main aliens of the story, the Syrians. What do we know about them? Well, to start with, we know that humanity is absolutely terrified of them without outright hating them. Adney's kids show an interesting balance between thinking of captive Syrians as no big deal, being fascinated that Forrester gets to work for one as if they're some kind of controversial celebrity, and treating them as an outright enemy during their VR history simulation flights. They have a diverse group of kids and AI to hang out with, so they're not phased by the octopus-like appearance of the aliens, especially since other extraterrestrial species are mentioned besides the red-headed Martian human transplants, But humanity as a whole is still cautious. Ultimate death is still their greatest fear, even as they live for centuries. And despite having a death reversal process available, most people don't seem to smoke or drink heavily, preferring fairly healthy activity. Humans discovered the Syrians while exploring the stars. They and their probes have traveled to far-off places in the constellations, all the way to Ursa Major. When they came across a Syrian ship near one of the mysterious artifacts scattered across the universe, 2001 A Space Odyssey style, they promptly attack it and take the survivor's prisoner. This seems like an overreaction, but the war games later observed that are practiced by the Syrians indicate it may have been a wise choice. Like Prime Minister Harriet Jones in Doctor Who, they made a choice and chose to protect humanity by keeping Earth's location secret, just in case, and they stand by it. Now they are constantly prepared for a war that may or may not find them. After learning more with Adne's children's help, Forrester realizes all of this. Quote, He had been thinking of the Syrians as a paper tiger, but now he saw the fangs. Englobed by fortresses with vast and mighty vessels of war flitting ab- about like wasps, the whole Syrian system was a vast network of armament. There were a dozen planets in all, two of them in Trojan orbit with uh, Sirius B, The rest, normal satellites of the Great White Star. All were inhabited. All were defended. It is at this point Forrester learns about the Syrian war games that seem as big and real as a true destructive conflict. Their regard for life and limb is limited, especially compared to the modern human reliant on the death reversal process. This is why Earth now has underground evacuation shelters everywhere and special alert systems in place, which all come in handy when a Syrian gets off-world. Here is a basic physical description. Bright green fur, a diadem of tiny eyes peering out of a rough around a pointed head, tentacles. Syrians require pressure suits to navigate Earth's atmosphere. Quote, it looked like uh, a little like a glittering mushroom, a little like a chrominum ice cream cone. It rested on ducted jets that swept it across the ground, unquote. Only their eyes are visible through windows in the suit though they can use their tentacles while wearing it. The Syrians don't have sexes as we know them. Forrester briefly works uh, for one of the captive Syrians, who lets him call it S4 rather than Alfard 400 Trimate, which seems to refer to its family group or mating structure. All 11 prisoners are of the same sex, but no one knows what that sex is, so Forrester just thinks of S4 as he for his own convenience. This part reminds me a little bit of James White's Sector General series, which discusses the use of the of uh, it rather than he, she, or other when referring to extraterrestrials due to differing sex and genders across the stars. Sometimes the parallel doesn't matter enough to dwell on. Imprisoned and watched on Earth for 30 years, these 11 aliens seem less emotional than humans. This is supported by Syrian experts who think the escaped prisoner forester inadvertently helps will bring war to Earth. The fact that the Syrian language is described as tenseless and quasi boolean indicates that they are more machine-like than we are, speaking in something akin to computer notation and struggling with human nuances. When speaking English, they sound hollow and unaccented, perhaps aided by machinery, more robotic than the joymakers. I think this adds to the irony of Taiko Hironibi's situation since by the end he's relying on them to help him save humanity from machines when they themselves are cold and calculating. As a fun side note, I wish I had covered this book before The Voyage of the Space Beagle, because. If you listened to that episode, you'll know that I really struggled to find a definition for the term nexial, and the age of the pussyfoot has it. (laughs) Somehow I just couldn't get my Google keywords to bring up the answer I was looking for. Well, here it is. The word nexus refers to a central something that is connected to multiple other things, and nexial more or less means central. Thus, the nexialists in Space Beagle chose their they chose their name to reflect how their field of science is meant to be a cornerstone connecting and improving other sciences I wish I could go back and put that tidbit into the correct episode anybody who already knows it will listen to the Space Beagle discussion and think I'm dumb they'd probably be right Wow, I'm tired. This episode took forever to finish because I kept wanting to look up and explain more details, and it's taken me all day to record this audio. What is TIC data? Where is 22H Camelopardus? Should I talk about the ways condos have holes in the walls that produce goods, kind of like in the Uglies series? Though those books make almost the opposite point to this one. Perhaps I should reread the details Adney gives about her period to plot it out? Can we speculate about soul burn on Mercury like a terrible sunburn? What about the American Documentation Institute that seems to be the future of GPS? You get the idea there's just too much to cover. I want to conclude with a brief analysis of the book's use of the word kamikaze. This is another instance of Japanese characters or words being used in futuristic settings, which we've seen in sci-fi books and movies for years since Japan was such a rising star after World War II, and even now, years after the economic bubble burst. Kami means god, and kaze means wind, and the original kamikaze happened earlier in history when a huge storm prevented invaders from making it across the sea to Japan. The famous kamikaze pilots were meant to replicate this God sent miracle for the sake of their country when all seemed lost. Adni uses kamikaze as a sort of nickname for the people born in the 20th century. It took me a while to figure out what she meant by it, but it seems to refer to the fact that these ancient people were concerned for things outside their control willing to confront danger where others find it unnecessary. It's a term that fits Forrester very well and is his main redeeming characteristic. At the end of the story, when he is confronted with the end of humanity as anyone knows it, he makes the choice to slit his own throat in order to be taken away in a death reversal vehicle and tell the doctors what he knows. Forrester is willing to sacrifice himself by admitting to his involvement in the Syrian escape plan, all for the greater good. In a way it's kind of the opposite of a real kamikaze suicide pilot since the rest of humanity rushes to die while Forrester has himself taken in for healing. Everyone else jumps to their doom while he spends most of a month wallowing, thinking, and crawling out of depression, emerging with a new acceptance of the world he's in. While you could say he didn't really have a choice since the only alternative was whatever Taiko thought was best, I realized that this is completely in character. Forrester was a volunteer firefighter back in the 1960s and perished in a fire after climbing to the top floor in an attempt to rescue a child. While a bit hard-headed and stubborn, Forrester earned himself many friends by being the sort of man willing to plunge headfirst, or face-first into danger to save someone else. It explains why he feels so awful after killing the Martian, despite knowing full well that the death reversal process frees him of any moral qualms. Throughout the book, he's felt most disgusted by people's desensitized attitude towards death. Of all the bad habits Forrester carried with him into the future, this compassion for life is the one that saved the entire world, a divine wind that arrived just in the nick of time in just the right way. It's a reminder that even as we look out for ourselves, a purely selfish future could lead us to ruin, or in this case, to an eternity in the freezer. Let's wrap this up. I had a really fun time revisiting The Age of the Pussyfoot, but it's a lot to cover on top of writing a book. (laughs) Stay tuned for more about that. Check out my Instagram or Facebook profile to stay up to date, subscribe and click the bell for episode notifications on YouTube, vote for planetary health, learn about AI, and love your fellow entities. Until next time, bye-bye, earthlings.